0: I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres such as Revenants, Aliens, Franchises, and Directors' Bodies of Work.
1: And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers.
0: Alright, we're back on June the first, 2021, with part two of our three-part John Carpenter series. And uh yeah, I think I learned a lesson and I probably shouldn't have done his entire backstory on just the first episode because now I, I have less to do on this one and i probably should have done it chronologically but you know you live and you learn
1: well you know it is what it is and uh, we got two more episodes so uh we'll, we'll do some more sprinklings through there
0: well i didn't really want to do him in chronological either i wanted to kind of like break him apart so you know it's it's a little different so these are
1: terrible things you want to do to john carpenter i'm going to tell him on twitter
0: <laughs> and he'll probably uh tell me what i can go do to myself <laughs> But before we dive into our classic Carpenter flicks, let's go over the news and whatnot. I was reading just before the episode aired that Quiet Place 2 had a $58 million opening weekend. Fuck yeah. That's a lot for right now, you know, like during COVID. That's pretty good for a horror movie opening weekend too.
1: And hopefully I will have fucking seen it by the time this episode airs.
0: Possibly not because we're going to go see The Conjuring 3 this weekend, right?
1: That is the plan.
0: Yep. I don't know when yet, but it's happening. <laughs> There's a new Dexter teaser, and this one actually has a little bit of dialogue, so we get to see how Dexter Morgan, or his new name, which you'll see on the trailer, is acting now. So, it's kind of the same. In a good way, though. I'm going to have to look that up. Apparently, Evil Dead Rise is going to go straight to HBO Max. What? Evil Dead 4? The new one?
1: Wait, it's like... So it's really happening.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. It's been really happening. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm assuming it's being made by Warner brothers. Cause that's the whole Warner brothers stick is everything's going straight to HBO max the same day as theaters for like a couple weeks. Right. Ah, this was a crazy one. Amazon bought MGM studios for eight and a half billion dollars.
1: Yeah, I'm tr- I am heard about that. I'm troubled by that to a certain extent because, one, that seems like a lot of money to pay just for their back catalog to put mm-hmm, on Prime. Because mm-hmm. when was the last time MGM put anything out?
0: I don't know if they are, if not the oldest, one of the oldest American movie studios. So it's kind of weird that it's owned by Amazon. Not as weird as saying that Amazon owns killer clowns from outer space now.
1: Part of that upsets me.
0: <laughs> i was reading something online where they were saying not only is this weird like how you just said but it just seems like they could have spent eight and a half billion dollars better yeah they pointed out disney bought star wars for four billion and marvel for like four billion and they're like for eight billion eight and a half billion you could have got star wars and marvel <laughs> and made a lot more money like there's just different ways they could have done it besides buying a back catalog of movies for prime when people only watch amazon prime because they have prime shipping anyways
1: yeah i mean that's i don't know let's wait and see maybe there's some maybe there's some hidden bullshit that no one has realized yet but i'm sure shit not see it
0: <laughs> there's just a movie probably in the catalog that's bezos's favorite and he wants to say that he owns it <laughs>
1: uh last two little
0: tidbits here the trailer for last night in soho came out and um Still confused and still excited to see it. And it looks pretty cool. And it looks more like a Flanagan movie to me than an Edgar Wright movie. So we're just going to have to see how that goes. (laughs) Nice. Edgar Wright is an amazing director and writer, but he usually does comedy stuff sprinkled in. This does not appear to have that. It honestly has a little bit of that Italian horror flick vibe to me, like Suspiria and stuff like that. So,
1: Oh, that could be good or bad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Granted, it is a teaser, so, you know. Oh, okay. And the list was too great to write down, but apparently Funco just released a metric shit done of horror pops. Like there was a new Sam. They had the kid from Brightburn. They had, it might've been Captain Spaulding and I saw a bunch of them. So just look them up. There was a bunch of new horror movie ones.
1: All right. That'll be the bulk of Ginger's Christmas this year.
0: <laughs> as far as announcements, I don't have any other than this episode is most likely going to come out, not on Friday and more towards later in the weekend like the last one so
1: <laughs> more tours later in the weekend i love how vague that is
0: <laughs> outside of the podcast life has been uh it's been pretty strong the past few weeks so things are leveling out and i'm about to have a lot more free time so hopefully that helps maybe we can get ahead but for right now we're just Going to be perpetually late until we have sponsors that tell us we can't do that anymore. <laughs> I do, however, have some updates and corrections. So for the first one, when I mentioned John Carpenter writing a big budget movie called Eyes of Laura Mars, that was one of his first big budget movies. I got the plot wrong. I said that it had an eye transplant from a killer's eyes. And I was kind of right. That was John Carpenter. Kind of. It was a segment from body Bags starring Mark Hamill of star Wars fame. And he got the serial killer's eyes and John Carpenter did a segment on body bags, but not that one.
1: I remember that,
0: but the actual movie eyes of Laura Mars one, it was directed by Irvin Kirshner who directed the empire strikes back. First of all. Okay. <laughs> and it starred Faye Dunaway, Tommy Lee Jones, Brad Dwarf and raw Julia. So it was a hell of a cast for a, early John Carpenter movie. Yeah. And the plot was that a famous fashion photographer developed a disturbing ability to see through the
1: eyes of a killer. Oh, so yeah, you're kind of right,
0: <laughs> but uh, I haven't seen that one. It seems kind of interesting. And with that cast and director, I'm probably going to have to check it out. All right. And I also want to point out that in Christine and the book, Arnie and Dennis worked on a construction crew over the summer. And this is how Arnie saved up enough money to buy Christine and explained how Dennis knew how to drive the bulldozer. However, the book's finale did not feature a bulldozer and instead had a pink septic truck named Petunia that (laughs) battled Christine, basically. And Stephen King's idea was for the final battle to be two powerful ladies duking it out. And in the previous episode, I had referenced that in the movie, Dennis had done construction prior. And I think I was thinking apart to the book, or maybe it was a, one of the 25 deleted scenes, but I do not believe they <laughs> actually said it in the released version of the movie. And I just kind of put a bunch of facts together that I knew from outside of the film.
1: Okay. Now the book's short, right?
0: It's not that long. Okay. It's not like the stand.
1: A <laughs> few things are. I'm I'm now halfway interested in reading it because I, I I wanna <laughs> I wanna read Petunia <laughs> duking it out with Christine. That sounds awesome. How much cocaine was Stephen King on, you think? Not as much as he was on Maximum Overdrive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is an interesting note. I believe this was from your movie, Josh, but I think you said something about 27,000 hours. Oh, I'm right! So like, like, I guess that was the thing.
1: I really meant to go back and check this and totally fucking <laughs> forgot. This is great. <laughs> So that's 3.08 days. No wonder that motherfucker lost his shit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that's how long it would take for the thing to take over the earth, right?
1: All right. Now we know.
0: And for the last bit of housekeeping, what we watched, I'm sure I watched more stuff than this, or maybe I didn't. I've been busier than hell, but I watched Army of the Dead and Cruella. And I was just going to say Cruella really quick, because I know Josh hasn't seen it, so he's not going to have any response. It was kind of <laughs> like the PG-13 version of Joker with Joaquin Phoenix.
1: Look, from the trailer, I'm actually half interested in seeing it. So <laughs> now, now I'm more interested in seeing it.
0: It's, it's a pretty damn good movie. Um, My kids weren't a huge fan, but my wife and I were. And I think it's because if they missed any mark, it was they missed the mark on making it for kids. And this was more of like an older Disney movie. Okay. But it's not horror related at all. Well, I guess skinning and wearing dogs is. That's pretty fucking horrific. (laughs) (laughs) You don't actually see any of that. It's, It's a Disney movie. And Army of the Dead, like I said, I've been waiting for that one for a while man judging by josh's responses i'm assuming he's gonna say something different but i thought it was a lot of fun and really fucking awesome
1: um we are gonna be totally different opinions on this one (laughs) the two things i want to say about this that film has plot holes you could drive the planet jupiter through and it made michael bay look like shakespeare i couldn't man i just i just couldn't i did like the tiger scene i don't want to spoil it i mean it it's, yeah. it's streaming, but the the tiger scene was fun. I liked the one practical shot of the makeup in the tiger scene, but no, man, the, when it got to the part, cause this isn't spoiler territory, the hibernating zombies and you can scream in their face and not wake them up, but you knock a fucking plate over and it wakes them up. I just can't I <laughs> fucking can't man. <laughs> Jesus. I did
0: like how they added TIG into the movie and they added a whole person into a movie over another person and it still looked better than Superman's mustache and <laughs> the Joss Whedon cut of justice league.
1: Yeah. They did a pretty good job on that. There's some shots where you can tell they were pickups. Cause it's like, why is this always a tight shot? <laughs>
0: There's actually only two pickup shots they did with her.
1: Why is she in so many shots by herself? I mean, it may have been shot that way to begin with. I don't fucking know. I didn't make the movie. I mean, it might have just been because of how they had to add it. I mean, all of her
0: shots were pickup shots. I meant with everybody else. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay.
1: I think the funniest thing about that, though, was uh, Batista said that he'd really like to meet her after being in a movie with her.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was good. I don't know. I liked it a lot. I really liked... Zack Snyder and James Gunn's remake of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. So I was glad to see Snyder dive back into a zombie movie. And it was really nice to me to get like a really fun turn your mind off action flick. And I really like heist movies. And Uh, it was a heist movie at heart. Oh,
1: yeah, it is.
0: Batista was great in it. Like, he's one of the best athletes turned actors. I think there is. Like, especially if you see like his short for the new Blade Runner. I mean, it's not new anymore, but Blade Runner 2049. Like, he was really good in that. And I liked them in this and there was some good character development and I like how they were smart enough to have like the YouTuber and stuff that would, you know, do pranks and stuff for hits. And you know, that he's experienced at yeah. fighting zombies and stuff like that. I thought a lot of that was new and creative and there was a little bit of a different spin on the zombies. Yeah. Like I liked how it was almost like vampire lore with like originals versus new ones.
1: Yeah. That there's a whole lot of good in there. I really think had it been distilled down about an hour, <laughs> it would have hit harder. You know what I mean? It was like, hey, I bet you, yeah. I bet you, they're going to have him cry four more times in the movie, and they do. It's like, okay, we already we got it once. We get the dynam- the family dynamic. I'm trying to not spoil stuff here, but after the third time, it's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, we know. <laughs> I
0: don't know. That was one of them. The when it was over, my wife and I were like, "Jeez, was that movie only like an hour fifteen long?" Oh, and then we saw that it was like two and a half hours long. and It did not feel
1: that way to us, dude. We were hoping it was over. Paused it, and it had an hour and forty minutes left. <laughs>
0: Jeez, yeah we had completely different yeah thoughts on that film but i thought it was like i said i just thought it was a lot of fun i don't think it was this great fucking masterpiece and marvel of film but i thought the special effects were cool <laughs> and it had some original shit and like i said it was, it was turn your mind off fun yeah and i hope he starts making more horror stuff and i hear that warner brothers is pissed that they like turned him down on the movie and he went to netflix and got it because <laughs> it was shit kinda,
2: happens
1: man
0: so what'd you watch besides Army of the Dead?
1: Shit, man. So while I'm, while I'm dumping on movies, we went and saw Spiral. Okay. Uh, all right. So the other stuff that I've watched. No, I mean, <laughs> I like Chris Rock. He couldn't carry the movie. The way his character was written, can't carry the movie.
0: Okay. How was Samuel L. Jackson in it?
1: Samuel L. Jackson is okay, but his character overshadows Chris Rock's character. Cause it's Sam Jackson, I man. Know. He does that even with what little bit he is in the movie. Ginger and I both pegged the baddie, maybe 15 minutes into the movie.
0: She's pretty good at that usually, but you're not. So that's scares me. That's
1: uh, exactly. And she woke me <laughs> up. I don't me,
0: mean that as an insult, but you know,
1: <laughs> she actually woke me up during part of the film. This is in one of those like big hundred foot, not like full blown IMAX, but like big screen at Limax. Sound. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. LIMAX. Not, <laughs> not quite IMAX. It's the Kmart IMAX. <laughs> but yeah, man, she actually had to nudge me like uh, out of a wall. Um, I don't want to stay stuck on that one for too long.
0: I'm going to go see it still. I might wait till it comes home now, even though you guys told me not to watch it, but I feel like I should watch it. I do hate that. I missed us doing the Saul franchise before the new Saul movie came out, but eh, eh. I guess it is what it is.
1: It's been a hot minute since I watched the Saul movies and this felt, it felt so removed, like not even anyways, too new. Too new. We could talk talk, okay, talk okay. more about it once you've seen it. The Nevers. Did you finally watch it? Yes. Now, I'm not going to lie. I fell asleep for a few episodes.
0: At the beginning, right? First couple, probably?
1: No, it was actually more towards the end because I know I was awake for all of the last two episodes, which were very okay. important episodes.
0: <laughs> yes. I just say from three on is where it started to just get crazier and crazier in a good
1: way. Yeah, it's fucking fun. I already won another season.
0: That's only half of the first season, by the way. Oh, that's only half? Yeah, they had to stop filming because of COVID.
1: Oh, fuck. Well, that's bad, but fuck yeah. That means more sooner, right?
0: (laughs) Correct. We're at least, and even if they don't renew it, we're still going to at least get this story finished. Now, it's supposed to be a 10 episode season. And since they had to break it in half and swap, you know, directors and writers and stuff halfway (laughs) through, basically, they're going to make it six and six. So it'll be 12 episodes total. So we actually get two more episodes out of it. So even. If they don't plan on renewing it, if they go in knowing that those six are going to be the end, I feel like they could tell us an awesome story. And if they do get it renewed for a second season, I hope they don't like stretch it too thin because I could see you doing that with this story.
1: Yeah. Real quick, one last one, just because it's funny how we saw it. Fried Berry oh okay it had been on our watch list it was a short and then dude promoted the shit out of his short and then got a full length made out of it and it's about a guy who gets abducted by aliens and then comes back and does a bunch of drugs and bangs a bunch of hookers and yeah that 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 really is the gist of it
0: i didn't have a verbal response josh was just (laughs) reacting off of my face which i wish i would have verbally stated but i don't think i can go back and do that now (laughs)
1: The only thing that made it watchable was watching it on uh Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. So at okay. least at least the movie was broken up by him. So yeah, it's there's really no point to the movie and there's some shock value shit in it. There's no story, there's no substance, there's uh, hard pass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds like something I would have skipped anyways.
1: You know what? That's a lot. There's there's a there's a bit of a story to it, but it's the guy who made it does a bunch of music videos, like that's his career. And and Joe Bob even says the movie really just feels like a bunch of music videos all strung together with a movie title on it. And that's what it feels like.
0: Well, I guess on to the movies. So I'm gonna start with 1980s The Fog. The movie was directed by John Carpenter. Duh. <laughs> I don't think I have to do filmography again. No, no, no. And it was written by John Carpenter, like most of his fan favorite movies, and Deborah Hill, right, who wrote Halloween 1 and 2 with him, as well as produced a lot of his earlier movies. And I just want to say, I don't feel like Deborah Hill got as much credit as she was probably due over time. If you think about, like, how much shit she did, she co-wrote Halloween, you know, she helped them through Halloween 2, how they were dating during Halloween, yeah, And then they broke up and he married Adrian Barbeau and then wrote her into this movie and they had to work on set together like stuff like that's kind of odd and, and Deborah Hill was just like always by his side working on these movies that were fantastic and still known to this day and everybody talks about John Carpenter but you don't hear people talk about Deborah Hill making them as well and I think she was one of the earlier female famous producers too.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree, and she should get lots of credit for what she did. Did you read about what Carpenter did about having her and Barbo on set during production of this just to make sure it was chill?
0: No, I just heard it was chill. I guess there was extra precautionary measures taken.
1: He made Adrian Barbeau stay in a separate hotel because he's like, I don't want anybody thinking huh. this is me bringing my new girl in and giving her everything like we're here to fucking work. Yeah. And did it for Deborah Hill. Like, no, cause she was on set and it's like, we're all just here to make yeah. a movie. Let's, let's not make it anything that it's not. And that was really cool of him. And that was really cool of her and for all of them to just get along and make a movie.
0: And let's be honest, even if he did write the part specifically for his wife, she was the perfect person for that role, I feel like.
1: Oh, yeah. For all eternity, she is the <laughs> horror fucking DJ. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I think, honestly, when he was writing the movie, he had the idea for her. And then they met and started dating and got married, if I, if I remember correctly. But I wasn't really going into John Carpenter's love life that much. I guess I could have to have more backstory on this <laughs> episode, but I didn't do any of that. But speaking of the cast, let's just go ahead and start with Adrian Barbeau. She plays Stevie Wayne infamous radio DJ as Josh put it and she's been in so many movies like everyone I'm about to say but just to point out a few that always come to mind swamp thing escape from New York and creep show yep and of course she's done more than genre flicks but hey we like to talk about genre flicks here
1: it is what the podcast is about
0: This movie also has a woman by the name of Jamie Lee Curtis that you might have heard of who Um, plays Elizabeth.
1: Sounds a little familiar. Was she, uh, didn't she do some independent film or something? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She
0: was in uh, the most successful independent movie of all time until Blair Witch came out called Halloween. Oh yeah. That one. And yeah. yeah, And prom night and terror train and scream Queens. And I always think of true lies, but (laughs) so many other films. I love that movie. It's just hilarious. We got to find a way to cover that one day, just so we can quote it a bunch. (laughs) This one's interesting. We also have Janet Lee in the movie as Mrs. Williams, who's Jamie Lee Curtis's mom and a classic famous actress. But as far as this podcast is concerned, we're just going to go with Psycho. Yep. Right. Everybody knows her from Psycho. Yep. This one is always a pleasure to see. Tom fucking Atkins. Thrill me. <laughs> I knew I was going to get that or a Miller time out of you. Yep. And I don't know if you paid attention to his character's name in the movie, but it's Nick Castle.
2: Yes. <laughs> That's some straight. funny shit.
0: Well, it's like the little kid in Halloween. Tommy Wallace is one yep. of John Carpenter's friends and producers on the movie and directed Halloween 3 and all that. I mean, it's crazy. Yep. But as far as genre flicks are concerned, Maniac Cop, Escape from New York, Halloween 3, Night of the Creeps. I mean, He's Tom Atkins. Yep. I want to hang out with him.
2: <laughs> he's on that
0: list. I was watching um in Search of Darkness part two, and he's on there talking and he's still like even older, like just smiling and cracking jokes. I'm like, man, he'd he'd be fun to hang out with.
1: I gotta find time to watch that. <laughs>
0: And I got a couple other people I'm going to bring up, even though they're not main characters, just because they're going to be a reoccurring trend over this episode and the next episode. And they're always a pleasure to see. And that is Charles Cyphers as Dan, who was also an assault on Precinct 13, Escape from New York, but he's also Sheriff Brackett in Halloween 1, 2, Halloween 2018, and in Halloween Kills. Yep. Yep. So we had to bring him up. This is in my favorite role out of all his roles. He's kind of creepy in this one, but I always like seeing him. And then we had Nancy Keyes, but I guess she was Nancy Loomis at the time, which is probably where Dr. Loomis got his name from, as Sandy, but she was also in Assault from Precinct 13, Halloween 1, Halloween 2, and then played a completely unrelated character in Halloween 3 as Tom Adkins'
1: ex-wife. Weird.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She didn't act very much. If you look, she only had five or six credits, and they were all Carpenter Wallace flicks, because she's... I don't know if her and Tommy Wallace are married or if they're just like been together forever, but I think they have kids and everything, but she did some stuff in their movies, but she, she wasn't a huge actor. She didn't keep acting. I I can't remember if she started doing behind the scenes stuff or she just got into another gig, but I don't know. She was good in the movie. She was in, we get the famous no keys from her, of course, that we like to use in this podcast, which makes her last name ironic.
1: Yeah. We beat the shit out of that horse. (laughs) Oh, it's so great.
0: And the last one i to bring up, because I think I actually brought him up when he passed away recently, but Hal Holbrook is Father Malone. I love him in everything I've ever seen him in. And he's in so many movies. There's so many different characters from every genre. But once again, I always think of Creepshow.
1: Yeah. He may be one of my favorite characters in this movie. Well, it gets a little weird at one part, but he's kind of an important character. <laughs> <laughs> He's got some weird parts.
0: Yeah. But I don't know. I feel like by the end, he kind of gets his footing. Yeah. And the last cast and crew that I want to go into is the special effects, which was done by Rob Boutine, who we talked about on the previous episode for doing the thing. And this is really where he started getting his feet wet. And he also got to play Captain Blake. But that's it for my cast and crew. I'm going to go into uh, a few little tidbits of back information and then the rest I'll fill in as we go through the story. But... John Carpenter really did not like his first cut of this movie, and he made some changes that I'll get into later. But even after he released the final version, he's been quoted saying, This is not one of my favorite movies. It's okay. (laughs) Right? Like, this is not one of his favorite movies. And it is one of his more famous ones in some circles, and then others, it's always the forgotten film. And I'm going to be honest, I only remember seeing this once when I was younger and it was with you and we were doing something else. And I remembered not liking it. And then I watched it a week and a half ago for the first time since then doing something else. And I I really, really didn't like it. And I was like, man, why did I pick this movie? (laughs) And then I watched it a second time. And then I watched it like third time, completely undivided attention. I took notes and I liked it a lot more, but it's because I started picking up on a lot of the extra stuff John Carpenter did and a lot of the backstory stuff that you have to really pay attention to. And I, this is not a turn your mind off and do something else. movie. this is just like a watch straight through. And even though I did like some parts of the movie, I'll, I'll agree with them. It's not one of my favorite movies. It's okay.
1: Yeah. And I'll, I'll get into more thoughts on it towards the end. I'm just really curious if this is what we got. How bad was that first cut? (laughs)
0: I know, I know. I'll go into that in a little bit in a minute, but ironically, the problem with this movie is that John Carpenter made a pre-Halloween era horror movie. This movie probably would have been fantastic had he never made Halloween two years before that.
1: You know what? That was a good fucking way to put that because it, it does. I know it came out in 80, but it, it feels like a fucking 70s flick.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't even mean in like a dated way, but when Halloween came out, it changed the horror game. Oh no, that's no, no, when no! We started getting slashers. That's when we started getting really violent, gory stab scenes and stuff like that. And he shot like a completely old school, innocent horror movie. It was PG. It would have been PG thirteen.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's what I mean. And it was just a a moody, atmospheric horror flick, and that wasn't enough after Halloween.
0: Right, and. I think it would have been a lot better received had it came out before Halloween, but it's just crazy that his own film basically made this film not as well accepted, right?
1: Yeah. It's kind of like that band that uh, they put out a killer first album, and it's like so fucking good that when you hear their second album, it's really fucking good, too. But it's not as good as that first (laughs) album, so you don't know. (laughs) Good riddance comes to mind, and we're going to get to them in a little while.
0: (laughs) That second album is actually my favorite album. Oh, really? Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. It's just really fascinating because through and through, it is like a good classic era horror movie, but coming out after Halloween, I don't know, it's just kind of weird. And he had to go pigeonhole in gore and violence to get it up to rated R to bring it up to, you know, Halloween and Friday the 13th standards at that point. Nope. But as I was saying, the reshoots were to make the film scarier. And there's some atmospheric shots that I'll bring up as as we get to them. Some of the kill scenes were mostly off-screen kills, kind of like how Halloween would do it without blood. So we went in and added close-up stabs and and whatnot. And the corpse in the morgue scene was added and the entire Barbeau fight on the roof of the lighthouse was added. Yep. Those were all reshoots. It was one third of the film was reshot (laughs) because the movie was so short. By the time they did the reshoots, it was basically one third of it. And even after reshoots, he only spent 1.1 million to make this movie.
1: And that's the thing. It made money.
0: It made $21 million in the box office. A few more things, guys, I'll dive into the movie. I want to say this movie has three scream queens in it. We had Adrian Barbeau who yes was his wife, but I believe he started writing the part with her in mind before they were even married, but she's been in so many horror movies and was considered a scream queen. Jamie Lee Curtis of course was a scream queen, but oddly enough, she couldn't really get any roles after Halloween (laughs) and she was having a hard time getting into movies. So after John Carpenter wrote the movie, he wrote her part into the movie after the fact just to give her a job. Cause he's like, she needs to be able to act right. Like she's great. And coincidentally, while making this movie, she got the role for prom night and terror train. And all three of these movies came out the same year.
1: Oh, damn.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, other than Halloween, those are her three scream queen movies and they all came out in 1980. So that's kind of awesome. And then her mom, Janet Lee, who's arguably the first scream queen. Yeah. And John Carpenter brought her in. Cause he just thought she would add a, a level of like respect to the film right having like a classic actress in there like just having her in would class the place up basically (laughs) and that's what he had her there for and it's really funny because jamie lee curtis and janet lee had been offered a couple of times to do mom daughter type roles in movies and they're like no we're not going to do that and then they ended up working together on this one yeah but mom apparently didn't babysit and they weren't playing a mother-daughter Right. They had their own roles in the movie, but exactly. But it's really cool to see all of them in one movie. And just like Halloween, John Carpenter had plans to make this an anthology series. And basically the fog would come to different towns and something evil would come out of the fog and it wouldn't always be the same thing. So it's like the fog takes something evil with it. I'd be totally down for that. Yeah, it would have been awesome, (laughs) but that's not what happened. (laughs) And he was inspired to, to write this movie after he took a trip to Stonehenge. and a creepy fog came in and he said just the atmosphere of being there, like gave him the idea. And he also used a movie called Trollenberg terror, which had like cloud or fog monsters in it. That was kind of part of his inspiration. And I don't remember what ship it was, but there was a ship that was purposefully wrecked and then plundered. Oh, he Just kind of took all those bits of information and put them together and made this movie. But unless you have anything to add, that's it for my back information until it comes up in the movie.
1: No, the only thing I got, I'll save for the end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, here we go, then. We start off with, is all that we see or seem, but a dream within a dream, Edgar Allan Poe. So we got an Edgar Allan Poe quote right off the bat as the, it's not the title card, but it's the first thing you see. And I'm pretty sure that was probably Deborah Hills doing because I've seen in several interviews where she said that she's always been in a horror and she names like old fifties horror monster movie she was into and Edgar Allan Poe. Right. So okay. as an Edgar Allan Poe fan, I bet she, she put that on there for the like title card for lack of a better term. But then we cut to the opening scene where we hear the sound of a ticking clock as a pocket watch basically appears like it's floating in thin air. And then the camera pans out and we figure out that, there is an old sailor sitting around a campfire with a bunch of kids and he's actually holding the stopwatch and he's telling them a scary story. Cinematography is awesome. I feel like on this whole opening scene here is out of place. As part of the scene feels, I liked how you had a clock floating in space. Oh wait, there's a chain on it. Oh wait, there's a hand holding it right. Oh wait, there's people here. It was really neat how they did that. They shot it in a dark warehouse and set outside for that effect.
1: Yeah, that part, you feel like you're you're stepping into something, and then it's enveloping, <laughs> and that's, it's, yeah, God,
0: I'll wait till the end. And this was one of the additional scenes, by the way. This was not in the movie originally, this whole campfire scene. Okay. But what we learn is that it's 1155 and just enough time to tell one more story before midnight. And at midnight, it's going to be the 100-year anniversary of the tragedy that occurred on the beach at Antonio Bay, the town they're sitting at, right? And the legend that we hear or the scary tale is that there was a clipper ship that was caught in a fog at sea. And they saw a lighthouse, so they thought and headed towards the light and didn't realize it was a large bonfire on the beach and, of course, hit the rocks and the shore and crashed and sunk, right? Damn kids. Yeah, and uh, the sea captain telling the story likes to point out that it was a campfire much like this one, so it was done really well to creep the kids the fuck out. Yeah, but apparently as the ship crashed, the fog cleared out was the last thing he said in the story, and that's kind of an important note. But we find out that this is the legend of Antonio Bay that sailors and fishermen tell everyone they meet and that when the fog returns, there will be revenge coming is the story, right? we then get an ominous bell it's 12 o'clock and then we get an odd pan up from the man into the darkness and then it goes into the shore and title card john carpenter's the fog and that just kind of closes out that awesome scene with like a neat pan and and going through town and stuff right yeah but after the opening credits we cut to a church where we can see john carpenter smoking and closing up for the night god damn he's even smoking in his cameos man
1: i know right it's so weird seeing him without (laughs) gray
0: hair (laughs) (laughs) He has said on multiple occasions that he regrets doing that scene. He, he wanted to do it initially so he could see how it was from an actor's perspective to aid him in directing. And he said all he learned is how to direct somebody that acts very poorly. <laughs> but I thought he was fine in it. He had a small part and, and I found it humorous, but I, apparently he didn't like it, but I thought it was pretty good.
1: I was fine with it.
0: But he goes in to tell father Malone that he's done for the night and he's about to head home and father Malone tries to offer him a drink and tells him to come in at four the next day. And John Carpenter turns down the drink and says, he'd really like to get paid. And the priest tells him, well, why don't you come in at six tomorrow instead? And he's like, okay, father and he leaves without getting paid. And, I got a question for you, Josh. Do you think this was kind of like the real-life depiction of how the Halloween royalties conversation went with Mustafa <laughs> Cod and John Carpenter?
2: That may be. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, oh. So Father Malone decides to chase after John Carpenter, or I think his name is Beckett, because it's really funny he's like, Beckett, Beckett, and yeah. he grabs his drink because he was pouring some booze, and he grabs that and his portable radio because he doesn't want to miss out on the smooth jazz from Stevie, and as he's heading for the door, he hears something cracking, and he turns around, and a giant piece of the wall falls on the table where he was sitting, and we see that there was a book hidden in the wall behind that, right?
1: I just want to give a shout out to modern construction code enforcement. You guys save lives. (laughs) (laughs) But
0: the book says that it's the journal of father Patrick Malone, which was his grandfather. And one of the pages says April 30th, midnight till one belongs to the dead. Good Lord, deliver us. There's some more interesting things in this journal, but I'll get to that in a minute. But then we start getting some shots through town and we can hear Adrian Barbeau on the radio talking about it being the hundred year anniversary of their town. And the camera goes through the entire town and it's creepy and empty. And this was one of the pickup shots. All of this was a pickup shot. We hear phones ringing, bells, dinging, glass shattering. There are large tremors happening. All the clocks start to mess up and freeze. Lights are going crazy. Machinery's going crazy. And just like she said on the radio, it's midnight, right? Like that's how the clocks all froze at midnight right then. So I guess we're to assume this happened the same time the sailor was telling the story. Right. And that was part of what he added to make the movie creepier after he watched it. He, he did that opening scene and he just had footage that he did of phones hanging off the hook. Like it's 28 days later, right? Like it was (laughs) a lot of those kind of creepy atmospheric shots. If you think about it, there's a lot of scenes you see in the fog that kind of happened at the beginning of that movie that, that people always like give it a claim for. Yeah. But it it was really neat. And it, it did add to the atmosphere of the movie and it lets you know that something fucky's happening. Right. Exactly. But we briefly cut to a house and we can see Nancy keys or Nancy Loomis or whatever she went by at that time. And she's looking out the window at all of the cars running in her neighborhood and the lights flashing and her dog's freaking out or the neighbor's dogs freaking out or something. And then our TV cuts on, and it's on static, and then we just see furniture slide across the floor poltergeist style, right? So, like, shit's really weird there.
1: Yes, straight up poltergeist style.
0: (laughs) Actually, was this first? This was. Aha! But then we cut to the road, and we see Tom fucking Atkins driving an old pickup truck and listening to the Stevie Wayne show as she talks about guiding them through the witching hour. And then he sees a hitchhiker. It's not any hitchhiker, though. It's Scream Queen Jamie Lee Curtis, right? And he picks her up and he shares his Budweiser with her. And she says that this is her first time hitchhiking and she wants to know if he's weird or not. And he says, Yes, he is weird. And then she gets really excited because her last ride was really boring and normal. And he finds out that he's actually her 13th ride since she started hitchhiking last week. And Tom or Nick says, Great, I'm weird and unlucky. Good times. <laughs> yeah. I'm have a real weird problem with my notes because I originally only called every character by their real name because they're also famous from horror. And then I started using their character's names. So this is going to get real interesting. But nice. Tom, Nick Castle, Jamie Lee Curtis, Elizabeth. Okay. <laughs> Father Malone. I think I started that one outright.
1: Somebody's going to be in and out listening to this shit. And you're like, the fucking shape? What is this guy talking about?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and. I also want to point out that the radio is playing smooth jazz anytime we do not hear Adrian Barbeau speaking, and it's because that was way cheaper to get generic smooth jazz than to pay the royalties for rock songs. Ah, it worked. John Carpenter, king of low budget flick, man. (laughs) But we cut to the radio station, which is in a lighthouse, which I think is kind of cool. And we can see Stevie Wayne cutting to a song and answering the phone. And it's a call from Dan at the weather station, played by Sheriff Brackett, Charles Cyphers, And he's being a bit flirty with her, and he mentions that there's a fog bank rolling in, and she might want to mention that on air. And he also lets her know that he changed his shift so that he would be off the next night to go to the town's birthday party that she just mentioned on air. And then she says she has to go, and she goes back live on the radio and announces the next song will be from the Coupe de Ville's. And the Coupe de Ville's was an actual band that consisted of three members, John Carpenter, Nick Castle, and Tommy Lee Wallace. Oh, nice. Nice. So that was their band they did. So it was nice that they threw that name in there. I don't remember if it's actually one of their songs. There's a movie I'm covering on the next episode that definitely has a Coupe DeVille song in it, but it's really cool <laughs> that it's that little trio of friends that have been together since college. Right. Yeah. But we cut out to sea and we see a boat with three guys hanging out on it and drinking and talking about how attractive Stevie Wayne sounds on the radio. And one of the guys is looking out the window and he says, there's not a fog bank out there. And he continues to repeat this point until he stands corrected
2: hey there's a fog bank out there
0: (laughs) (laughs) that whole scene's really weird and that that guy is in a lot of john carpenter movies and he's usually playing like the kind of doomsayer role
1: is that the same dude that's in uh they live
0: yes and he's also in escape from new york and his character in this movie's name is tommy wallace (laughs) so john just named people after his friends it's fantastic
1: I'm not sure if it's the same guy. I just got a really shitty DVD. The quality, it looks like somebody filmed this off of a TV set on the fucking DVD <laughs> that I have.
0: Jeez. Anyways, the guys on the boat decide they've had enough beer and it's time to head back to shore. <laughs> And they notice how odd the fog looks and it starts to surround their ship and the fog starts to roll through the ship and it starts to break equipment on the ship. And when they go up on the top deck, they see a large old-timey clipper ship go by until it's out of sight. And then you start to hear shit splash in the water around them, which is kind of creepy. because You can't see anything. And then they start to hear somebody walking on deck and they turn around to see guys in shrouds, basically like cloth wrapped around their faces with fish hooks and like cavalry sabers. And they surround them and stab them all to death. And that scene was in the movie, but the close ups of the knives going in and stuff was pickup shots to make the movie scarier and gorier.
1: Yeah, that, this part's fun. <laughs> I'm still having fun at this point in the movie. <laughs>
0: Okay, we quickly cut to Stevie at the station and she's looking at the clear open sea until she gets a flash of light in the fog that's way off in the distance like the water around her is clear, but there's an odd fog bank in the distance and she thinks it's weird that she's seeing it light up, right? And then Dan calls her during all this to let her know that she was wrong about the direction she said the fog was going on air. And she said it can't be unless all of her gauges were off. And as we're starting to see, the fog's a bit supernatural. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's classy. and he hits her up for a date on the phone call and gets shot down we cut to Nick and Elizabeth and we can see that they have clearly hooked up at this point. (laughs) And we get a little bit of information on her backstory and they're flipping through her art book where she's been drawing things on her, her journey. Right. And they're interrupted by someone beating on the door with a hook. And Nick goes to open the door where we can see fog coming like around the door. Right. And we can see the sailors silhouette prepping to kill them at the door. And then the clock dings 1 a.m., Right as Nick opens the door, and as he does that, the sailor vanishes and the fog goes away. So they're only here from 12 to 1.
1: You got one hour, buddy.
0: (laughs) And there's something not explicitly stated in the film. I'll bring it up later, but it kind of develops a little bit of a plot hole in this movie. But I'll wait till we get further in, so don't make it entirely confusing. But back to the clock breaking and everything with Nick, we know for a fact that it was actually 1 a.m. and not just the clock messing up because we hear Stevie on the radio saying that it's 1 a.m. and time for her to sign off, right? So this all goes back to the story we heard at the beginning. The next day, we see Stevie's son on the beach with a fishing pole, and he thinks he's found a gold coin on the shore down by some rocks until a wave splashes on the gold coin. And when the water goes away, it's a piece of driftwood that says Dane on it. And he grabs the piece of driftwood or sign or whatever, and he runs home to show his mom what he's found. And, of course, she's very excited to be awakened at the butt crack of dawn after pulling an all-night shift. I
2: love you. Sometimes you're in real pain. This is one of those times.
0: Something else of note, though, is as her son was running into the house, the camera did a pan through the house. Like when those classic John Carpenter you know, <laughs> yeah. glides through and we can see that there was a father in the picture when Andy was a baby, at least. And I'm assuming that he, he possibly passed away is what happened and not that they split up. And we can see that. Stevie and the dad worked at a radio station before, and it was probably in Chicago because earlier when she was looking at the water, she said, well, at least it's not Chicago, right? So either her and her husband split up or he died and she left Chicago to start a new life. And we also see a newspaper clipping that says that she bought the local radio station, KAB, and she's now the owner and DJ. Yep. So we got all of her backstory and like a, a, a glide through the house. Well, <laughs> we cut to the docks and we see Nick and Elizabeth looking for Nick's buddies that never came back to shore that night. And he lets the dock master know that he's gone out with them plenty of times. And they've never gotten so drunk on the boat that they forgot to come back. Right. <laughs> and he wants to, the dockmaster to contact the Coast Guard, and he says he's going to talk to someone in the loaning him a boat or whatever, so he can go look for his friend's boat, the seagrass, and Elizabeth, the such she's going to stick around a bit because originally she said she was headed for Niagara Falls, I think, or Canada or something. I don't remember exactly what she said. Vancouver. And she was only going to be around for a day. Vancouver, thank you. And they were basically just hooking up for the night, and she was going to hitchhike her way on out, but now this has gotten interesting. She wants to stay. And right? she's
1: going to draw penis number 13. <laughs>
0: I think she already drew it, but he might be 13, 14, and 15. <laughs> well, we then cut to Stevie driving to work, I guess. I don't know. Does she like <laughs> work from like morning to 1 a.m.? I don't understand how this works. No, right? But she's driving with the Dane Driftwood in her Jeep. And on the radio, we can hear that the seagrass is now reported missing and for everyone to look out for it. And this next part jumps back and forth between two stories happening simultaneously, and this works really well for the tension of the film. But for discussion's sake, I think it's going to be easier if I just tell them as two separate stories instead of bounce back and forth, okay? Okay. We can see Sandy and Janet Lee making sure that the celebration is going to go on as planned, and I don't think they explicitly say it, but I think Janet Lee's character is the mayor of the town, is what I got out of it, right? That would make sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so. she's trying to make sure like the statue looks okay. Cause it's a little statue of ironically, a clipper boat. So I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't know how they celebrate that part. They wanted this shit.
0: <laughs> right. Right. But they head off and we find out that Janet Lee's husband was on the boat that was missing. I think it was actually his boat and she's worried. So she called the coast guard, right? So that's how the coast guard got notified. And she talks to Sandy about not being able to sleep the night before because of shit going crazy at her house right at midnight. And Sandy realizes that is basically the same time and same thing that happened to her. Right. Yep. And Janet Lee, or I call her by her character name, Mrs. Williams um, arrives at the church with Sandy to see father Malone and she's basically wanting to see if Father Malone's prepared to do the benediction at the celebration that night. And she hopes he hasn't been hitting the cups a little too early, she says, <laughs> right? So, as we saw earlier when he was talking to John Carpenter, he drinks a good bit. But as she's looking for him in the church, she's startled as he comes out of the darkness behind her and says he needs to show her something. And he just fucking appears out of nowhere. And it's probably one of the earlier jump scares in film. <laughs> and it's really cool. They darken that corner and had hell hall ber- hide in the corner but it couldn't get it dark enough like they wanted it to completely obscure him. so they filmed the movie as is and john carpenter artificially darkened that part of the frames on the film oh, okay so that he just kind of steps out of nothing because they didn't have cgi to do it back then <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of neat though a fake ass jump scare but kind of a good one but father malone takes him to the book that he found and he starts to read it to him and we find out that Captain Blake was a wealthy man from a leprosy colony and he came to ask father Malone for aid. We find out that Blake, like I said, was wealthy and used his money to purchase a clipper ship. And he's got a group of lepers living on there and they want to move to the shore near the area of Antonio Bay. And they're asking for permission to like pay for the land and move down there. And father Malone said in his journal that he was torn between compassion and knowing that a leper colony would be right down the road. Yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah, and Father Malone and the founders of the town decide to take Blake's gold to turn their colony officially into a township because I think they were on ships that came and and found the area, right? And that's why they have the clipper boat, basically, as their statue, not necessarily for this boat. But they decide to take the money for the town and kill Blake and all of his people to prevent a leper colony from happening
1: near them, right? All fucked up. This is sounding a lot more like they live. (laughs) (laughs) Cause this is taking the have nots and uh, fucking them over while making them think that they're giving them something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's called life,
1: <laughs> but
0: something else that I want to note is I think it's this scene. There's a couple of scenes with father Malone in the book, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's this one. He's reading one page, but not the other, but both the pages are written on. And have you heard the story, <laughs> no, you got to pause it. It's not on it long enough for you to actually read it, which makes this funnier. Okay. There's a lot of random shit on the page, but uh, just two of the main ones that stick out my college education to work writing this dumb shit for this fucking movie prop It's <laughs> written on the page and the classic it's time to bring the nude girls, the big tits tattoos and shade to beavers. That was now that's progressive. <laughs> yes. It's like, what the fuck? They actually wrote that on the page. Can you imagine like a classically trained actor, like hell Holbrook holding this prop? <laughs> and he has to read this one page, and you know he glances at the other one, and he's like, "What in the fuck is that?" <laughs> like, you know, that had to happen, right? Well, oh,
1: yes, number one, number two. Remember when you'd get in trouble at school, and your teacher couldn't give you any constructive criticism; it would just make you copy out of a <laughs> book, and you'd get bored and just start right making it look like you're writing. That's what I'm picturing here. But at least this has got fun <laughs> shit that they wrote. That <laughs> is crazy fucking crazy, shit, man. My- I'm gonna have to try to go back and, and see if I can actually read that shit on the DVD.
0: You can find uh, still shots on the internet where people took up it. (laughs) That's like one of the crazier Easter eggs about this movie. That is great. I remember we used to like to pause like old VHS movies and try to read shit. I wonder if we would have done it to that one had we watched this movie more if it would have just kind of snuck past us.
1: Maybe. Maybe we should have been told about dude going full frontal in uh, Teen Wolf sooner. We would have found that too. Wait, what? You don't know that?
0: Oh, in the basketball game in the background right
1: yep (laughs) they didn't realize it till dvd and had to scrap a production run and re-release it Anyways, (laughs) Anyways,
0: <laughs> anyways is right. Cause I've gone so far off of target, but I, I think we were at the point where the townsfolk took Blake's money and was going to let him die. Right. So there wouldn't be a leprechauny down the street. Yes. But the next day's entry on the boat from what father Malone says, cause it didn't actually read the page is that the deed <laughs> is done. And basically they set up a fake fire on the wrong spot in the beach. Cause they're supposed to leave a large bonfire to guide the ship in. Right. But they put it in a dangerous spot to signal Blake and crew to come in to find land and they were trapped and they would have a crash and a heavy fog came in as the boat was coming in, which made it a lot easier for this deed to be done. Right. Cause it, it hid that they were leading them into dangerous waters and Blake and crew were dead and the township, Plans to recover the gold the next day, is what the journal entry says, right? So they're going to go diving for all the gold that he supposedly had on the ship. They had a lot of trust in this plan. Like, (laughs) what if he didn't actually have any gold? (laughs) I know, right?
1: Like, holy fuck, we killed them all and they've got nothing?
0: (laughs) Yeah. But Father Malone, our Father Malone, the, the present one at this point in time, says that the celebration tonight is a travesty and that they're all honoring murderers. And he is accurate on all accounts. Yep. And Sandy and Mrs. Williams want to know where he found the book. And he says it was in the wall and it was right here where it came out at midnight last night. And they realized that's when shit got real at their houses. Right. And he says that that was the same time that the six conspirators made their plan to kill Blake and crew because they made their plan in between the hours of 12 and one. Dun, dun, dun. but that's also is that when they crash the next day i'm not sure because there's like i feel like there's pieces missing in this backstory sometimes yeah i can see that but mrs williams just wants to know if he's going to give the damn benediction that night which was her <laughs> only reason for arriving and he just keeps talking about they're all cursed and they decide he's just too weird and they leave right <laughs> We cut back out to sea, and like I said, these two stories were going on at the same time. And we see Nick and Elizabeth on someone's boat being driven out to the seagrass, and they board the boat, and they find that the deck is completely dry, but the generator and all the other equipment are busted and drenched on the inside, like the the boat had sank, right? And they go below deck, and they find that all the gauges are broken, and the glass is shattered, and the thermometer's stuck at like 20 degrees, Right. And Elizabeth points out that that's the same thing that happened with the clocks at his house the night before. And Nick thinks it's all really weird. He's like something cold got in here, but I don't understand why everything's wet. Right. But they find all the quarters are thrashed. Like they were ransacked and everything looks like it had been soaked in water, but the boat hadn't sank. Right. And Nick also finds that there's salt water in all their Budweiser cans because he just decides to check partially drink beer cans for some reason. That's evidence. Is that like smoking the, the cigarette butts out of the ashtray the next day?
1: No, no, no. That's like smoking the roaches left over from the joints.
0: Okay. That's worth it. But it's actually like fucking paprika or something because this Budweiser was <laughs> salt water. So, you know.
1: <laughs> I can't believe you told me to smoke that shit.
2: <laughs>
0: That's what I was thinking. Of. I oh, it's nutmeg and oregano. I fucked up my own joke, but you somehow still got it. So
1: it works out great. Yeah, see the important shit I actually remember.
0: <laughs> but Elizabeth and Nick start to have a heart-to-heart, and she says that weird shit didn't happen to her until she met him, and Nick tells a story that his dad told him about being out on a fishing trip one time and seeing a boat headed right for him. And his dad and mate tried to radio the boat, and they got no one, so they then parked next to the boat, went aboard, and found the boat was entirely empty, but there was food on the table. Right. Like there had been somebody there and his father says that he had found a gold coin and he put it in his pocket and took it home. And when he got home, he told Nick the story and he reached in his pocket and found that the coin was gone. I'm assuming his dad found a boat that captain Blake's crew had hit with the fog before out at sea. Maybe. I don't know. I could go with that. Maybe that was to hint to the fog for the anthology series. Who knows? But <laughs> it kind of gives Nick some inside perspective of everything. Right but as all this is going on and as he's telling the story, we can see that there's a cabinet knocked askew next to Elizabeth. And we can see that like the slide on it starts to move and starts to open. And when it finally gets to that point, it pops open and it's so sudden it's like a jump scare, right? Like you have a little bit of a sting with it and whatnot. And you're starting to think that the weak jump scares are becoming a little too plentiful in this movie and that they need to stop. And it's because you had the, Father Malone in the dark. You had the radio buzz earlier that Jamie Lee Curtis grabbed. I didn't even bring that up. And you had this scene, right? And you're like, man, they really got to stop with the jump scares. And then, bam, a fucking body falls on Elizabeth, scaring the shit out of her and everyone in the movie because you had now become numb to it, and they got you with one. So I don't know if that was ingenious planning on on the beginning or if it just kind of became a happy accident, but I do like how they finally get you with one at the end after doing a bunch of weak ones.
1: Yeah, it works, and Jamie Lee Curtis sells it.
0: Hell yeah, she sells it, because that's one of her more famous screams, I feel like. You got this, you got the one from Halloween. Like, you got one big one from each movie, and, and, and this was her second one. It's a fucking awesome blood-curdling scream. <laughs> she earned that title. But we cut to the lighthouse, the KAB radio station, and we see that Stevie's arrived at the station, and she heads in for work with the board that says Dane on it, and I guess she's the only DJ there because there's just pre-roll running right like pre-recorded dj talking it's a guy i don't know where she got it from which is kind of odd because i think it was the guy that came on the radio about the boat being found by the guard so maybe he does work during the day and then they roll footage in the middle I don't
1: know, Uh, but (laughs) that is pretty common back then because with, uh, my dad being a a DJ for so many years back then, that was literally part of it. Like you had to record all the spots, you had to record all the commercials and you'd have X amount of DJs at one station and they would all work on different shit. So you'd play your own pre-recorded shit during your shift sometimes. And then uh, you'd be playing other people from the night shift who recorded some shit for them. So that was totally the norm back then.
0: And then you come in with breaking news and he probably leaves a little bit of recording rolling for her to come in for a shift, right? Yep. But she comes in and she sets the board down on top of, I don't know, it's like a rack of tapes or something, right? Yep. And she starts to drink her coffee and we see that the board starts to have water pouring out of it and running down, right? She doesn't notice it yet until the water runs into the portable radio that she was carrying so she could listen to the show as she walked in, which I thought was kind of odd, but the water rolls into that radio and it starts to say some crazy shit about killing them all and it's in a really creepy evil voice and we can see that the board now says six must die on it instead of dane and then the board burst into flames and she grabs the fire extinguisher and puts it out but when she puts it out it's not burned and it just says dane on
1: it yep so it's kind of like she's going crazy see and this is the part where the movie lost me a little bit now i'm back we've had two cool things happen back to back okay okay i'll keep trying i'll keep trying
0: So she calls her son and she tells him she wants him to stay in the house and not leave and not to pick up anything else he sees on the beach and tells him to just hang with the sitter for the night and that she loves him and she's going to have to stay because the show must go on, of course, right? Yeah. You see how many fucking steps
1: she walked down? Of course she's going to
0: stay for a fucking shift. (laughs) (laughs) We cut back to Nick Elizabeth and they're taking Nick's friend's body back to shore and he wants to know how a man can drown without being wet. And he says that he had seaweed and water on him and in him. But he was in the bunk in his bed, right? Like it doesn't make any fucking sense. So they take the body to the morgue at the hospital and the doctor says that the eyes are missing, the lungs are full of fluid, and all sorts of other shit are crushed on his body. And the doc wants to know what happened and Nick explains that the boat was covered in rust like it had been soaking in water, but it was fine. And the doc says that he looks like he's been underwater for at least a month and that all of the algae and whatnot in him wouldn't have grown that quickly but he thinks this is crazy because he just saw this guy two days ago right (laughs) so he knows he hasn't been in the water for a month then the doc goes into this thing about water being cold and it can preserve parts of the body and he died in the ocean no matter what nick says right but as they're talking in the hall jamie lee curtis is in the room with the body and the body's behind her and we can see the the sheet moving and the arm reach out and grab a scalpel and we can see the body set up we get a cool like shot from the back of it stepping down and walking towards your very Halloween-esque
1: with, with the shape, really. Very much so.
0: Yeah, yeah. But the body gets right up behind Elizabeth and starts to approach her and then just randomly falls over and slams on the ground next to her. And we get another scream, queen scream. And Nick and the doc come running down the hall and they found the body on the ground. I guess they don't really show it again, but I guess it's on the ground. And we can see the number three carved on the floor. And then they hear the fog horns and they start to see fog rolling in. And we get some creepy additional footage of the town as the sun sets. And I'm sure that was part of the reshoots. I know the whole morgue scene was, and we go through an entirely empty town. Once again, am not sure if the three means I've already killed three or have three left because they're both true. Yeah. But we got a three either way. We get to find out that night why the town was empty. It's because everyone in the small township was at the ceremony, right? In the square. And the sheriff's telling the mayor that they're still looking for the other bodies. And she gets upset and says she needs to go lie down for a bit. And Sandy takes her. Nick, hears Stevie on the radio talking about the seagrass being discovered and all of the strange stuff with the fog. And he calls her to ask about what she said about the fog. And she lets him know that it was glowing when she saw it off in the distance the night before and that it was going against the wind. That's why she said the fog was going the wrong way because Dan told her there was a fog and she went off of her wind gauges, but this fog goes against the wind. Yep. And they agreed that the town went to shit around the same time. Right. (laughs) She also lets them know about the board her son found because he's believing her and he's got some weird shit going on too. Right. So they found common ground here to not sound crazy and speak to someone else. And we cut to Dan getting ready for his nightly phone conversation with Stevie as the fog starts to roll around his car as he's approaching the weather station. And it creeps up on the weather station as he's going inside. And Dan heads in and swaps shifts with his partner. And we find out that he did decide to work after all, even though he had it clear because Stevie wouldn't go on the date with him to the party and she was going to be working. So now he could work and talk to her. Right. Yep. Dan calls Stevie to tell her about a new fog bank coming in so that she can make a bulletin on air. And she does it very quickly. And Stevie gives very specific directions to the fog. And basically, she's hoping that Nick's listening and that he'll follow the directions of where the fog's going, right? And she asks Dan where the fog should be now. And he says, it should be right on top of me. And she turns the lights out in her lighthouse and she can see that the fog is glowing in the distance right like you can't tell if the lights are on and dan thinks she's high and takes a little <laughs> something to keep her up at night and the station is completely surrounded by fog at this point and the power goes out and all of his gauges start to go haywire he goes to see who's shining a light through his window because he thinks that someone pranking him he's trying to sound tough as he sets the phone down right and someone's beating on the door and he opens the door only to find it empty. And he turns back to yell to Stevie on the phone that there's nobody there, right? As Captain Blake appears behind him, grabbing him and killing him. And Stevie hears the whole thing go down, right? Just a normal phone call. <laughs> and at this point, I'm going to go ahead and call the third act. Yeah. Cause it goes pretty fast from here. We see the mayor's up from her nap i guess giving a speech (laughs) and thanking the hundred people who sacrificed all to found their township which i don't know what version of events she has i don't think she's talking about the leprosy colony right and (laughs) maybe they do have the story of captain blake's ship going down they just left out the leprosy part and you think they were other members coming to join the town maybe who knows what spin they've put on the story at this point yeah. But we hear Stevie go on air and she starts calling for the sheriff to call her immediately for an emergency. And an officer goes and grabs the sheriff and he goes to call her from a payphone. <laughs> <laughs> Which we haven't explained this on air for a while. There were a bunch earlier in in the town shots so Those was empty, but they were a box with a phone in it, and you would put money in and you could call people.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there was this book that was like bolted to this thing with a cable on it. That had phone numbers Mm -hmm. in it.
0: (laughs) Oh, we haven't done that one in a while. So that was, that was something. (laughs) The fog starts to surround the phone lines outside and takes the phone lines off the pole, basically. Like the fog rips them off. So the sheriff can't hear what Stevie's saying. Yep, We can then see the fog surrounding the substation, and it takes out all of the town's power right as the people at the celebration are lighting, basically like vigil candles to go walk and see the statue, right? And Sandy and Mrs. Williams look at each other like they know something's up. (laughs) because i'm guessing it's in between 12 and 1 at this point right yeah and we see the camera bounce locations as the townsfolk are going to the new statue and stevie freaking out because she can't get her generator started in the lighthouse and we see her son and his sitter are stuck in the dark at stevie's house with the fog rolling in on the house at that point nick and elizabeth show up at dan's office it's a lot going on at once but it's a bunch of quick cuts trying to tell a whole story here and nick and elizabeth find that dan's office is completely empty and of course now stevie's house is being surrounded by the fog it's left the the weather station now and it, it's moved over there and the sitter wants andy to go and close All the windows upstairs to make sure the fog can't get in the house. And we cut to Stevie right as she gets the generator started and she goes back on air and starts to yell for her son to get out of the house and run. And he starts giving the address over the air, hoping that Nick or someone hears and can go rescue her son, right? Yeah. And we see the fog start trying to get through the door and we can hear someone beating on the door. And we cut back to Nick and he hears the cry for help on the radio and he starts to head to the house. And then in the house, we see Andy go to hide in his room like he was told by the sitter right as she opens the door right and he wants to see who's there and she's like just go upstairs and as soon as he closes the door she's just fucking slaughtered from behind by three of the ghosts right yeah and i don't know it's pretty vicious stabbing on that scene she just like vanishes in the fog and you see that that was probably my favorite kill in the movie
1: it bothers me that she's so smart that she's like make sure all the windows are closed da, 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 da. i was like okay cool she knows what's going on and then once is the house secure yes all right let me open the front door <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe she's starting to realize she was being paranoid. It was probably what it was. Yeah, maybe. She's old. She's like, it's just fog.
1: Yeah, she's gone now. Murdering fog. <laughs> Glowing murdering fog.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Won't make that mistake again. But Andy goes and hides in his room, and we can see the fog under his door, and we can see light under the door where the fog is. And a hook starts to beat a hole through the door, and we think that Andy's done until Nick, pops up behind him and busts out the window and pulls Andy out, saving his life. Right.
1: Good kidnapper.
0: And I just want to work on the body count here. We lost three in the seagrass and the babysitter would make four. Well, actually five. Cause Dan died. Yep. We've got five of the six people dead at this point. So
1: who's the sixth. Oh, I know. I know, but I'll let you tell it.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Cause it's really confusing. Cause like, why was it going after Andy?
1: It just needs a body. right? Well, yes and no, no,
0: I'll get into that at the end. That's part of what bothers me. Okay. So we see Nick and Andy run to the truck and they get in as Elizabeth tries to take off. And we see Blake and crew start to surround the truck. And she has the truck stuck in a mud hole and she's trying to go and trying to go. And Nick tells her to put it in reverse because they're coming from the front. And right as she's about to get stabbed because there's no windows in the trucks, so They got blown out earlier. When he very first picked her up, she, she manages to go in reverse and they narrowly escape. Right. We cut to the town square and we can see that the sheriff wants to shut the event down due to the power outage. And Mrs. Williams says, well, if we just wait another five minutes, everyone will have gotten through to see the statue. and They can all just go home. Right Yeah. And the sheriff's like, okay, but maybe you should go home. And she agrees and lets Sandy take her and the sheriff's going to run the rest of the event. We quickly cut to Stevie apologizing for not being able to get to her son on air. And she hopes that someone did get to her son. And then she starts to cover where she sees the glowing fog moving through the town to warn everyone. And she's like, leave the town. If you can't leave the town, go to the old church. And Sandy and Mrs. Williams hear this on the radio, just like Nick and Elizabeth do, as they're approaching the intersection that she says the fog's coming out. because She's got a bird's eye view from that lighthouse, right? Yeah. And they have to drive away and run from the fog because it's basically chasing them on the streets. And the fog's really creepy in this movie because, yes, they filmed, like, fake fog, and I think they overlaid the film, right? But they always played the fog in reverse so that it would look odd. Yeah. Which is kind of neat. I mean, it, it does look creepy. It's kind of like the same way a stutter-stepping, you know, Japanese ghost girl looks creepier. Right? <laughs> but as Nick and Elizabeth are driving away from the creepy-ass golden fog stevie is eerily in the background on the radio just telling everyone to avoid it and seal their windows right and i really like how she's kind of like narrating while you have the score going in the background and i'm going to be honest this is one of my favorite synth scores of john (laughs) carpenter's it's got some really awesome music in it halloween's my favorite favorite because he's got the stings in it and he's got like all the background ambience but like the actual synth songs this movie are fucking awesome But she once again says, if you can't get out of town, go to the old church down the road outside of town. And she says that that's the only place clear from the fog right now, besides being out of the city limits, right? So they all head that way in their separate cars. And by all, I just mean Nick, Elizabeth, and Andy in one car, and then Sandy and Mrs. Williams in the other. Yes. But they arrive at the same time and they run in to find Father Malone hammered. And Nick takes his booze from him and smashes it on the wall. And we can see that it lands on the journal that is left in the chapel, right? And they all head into the cellar where Malone's office is, and we can see the fog surrounding the entire church through the cellar window, right? And as this is happening, we get a really good look at the creepy-ass fog and what it's doing from Stevie's point of view, and it starts to surround her tower now, too. And Malone starts to tell everyone about the curse again. And Nick believes him as Sandy and Janet Lee still think he's crazy. Yeah. And Nick goes and gets the journal out of the chapel. But as they go through the journal, they're trying to figure out who the sixth person is. And Malone says that it's him. And Janet Lee finds a page in the journal that says that the previous father Malone stole the gold from the town and hid it in the walls of the church. And we can see a ghost hand break through the window and they have to all start running and barricading the cellar window at this point. Right. So the the ghosts don't get through. Well, we cut to Stevie and she can hear banging on the door to her station as the fog starts to roll in around her too. And the ghosts start to break in there as well. So she also has to go and barricade her own door. And this is just like the scene earlier where I said it cuts back and forth on purpose for tension. Yeah. And I've tried to write it as two stories, but I felt like this one was too fragmented if I did that. So we're just going to do the hard cuts. Okay. Okay. But as Stevie's dealing with her own door, we cut back to the church where we see Father Malone and crew tear down more of the wall where the journal's being kept, and they find a giant-ass solid gold cross. And we find out that old Father Malone felt bad about the blood money, basically, and melted the gold into the shape of a cross and hid it in the wall. And maybe that was his original payment or something. I don't know, because obviously they had some gold found in the township still. Yeah. The ghosts start to really get in the window, and they grab Sandy. And Nick and team have to go run and save her. And Father Malone takes this opportunity to grab the golden cross and head out
1: into the chapel to sacrifice himself. And we now know he is one buff son of a bitch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gold's not that heavy, right?
1: Gold is very heavy. That's why they usually use lead oh. in, uh, with gold on the outside to try to sell it as gold bars. So that cr- just from looking at it, that cross would weigh like a couple hundred pounds.
0: It's just soft, right? I always think it's light because how soft it is exactly soft soft
1: metal but dense metal
0: but as father malone runs out into the church we cut back to stevie and we can see her running to the roof to get away from the ghost before they get into the room she's in and she's peeking through the windows and she can see him shambling around inside And they start to come for her, and she just keeps retreating further and further towards the top of the roof. One of the ghosts starts to climb up there towards her, and she doesn't realize it, but she's backing herself up to another one that's already standing up there, and it gets her in the shoulder with a hook. And she then slides down the roof towards the one that was climbing up to get her, and she pulls the hook out of her shoulder and hits him in the face, only to rip the blanket away, and we can see his rotted, leprosy-infected skin with maggots and worms falling out of it, right? Yeah, good stuff. (laughs) <laughs> and she said this scene was very hard to do because she was actually sliding and falling down an incline the whole time to film it right. Okay, with the stunt actors and whatnot. And she said she basically beat the shit out of herself doing this. But back at the church, Father Malone heads into the the church proper, like I was saying earlier, and we can see all of the sailors in the fog, right, standing in there with them. And Malone says, "Blake, I have your gold and." You need to come and get it from me. And they all look really creepy here. It's kind of an iconic shot. And yes. And Rob Vettine was six foot four. That's part of why John Carpenter got him to be Blake. So he's like tall front and center and all of their eyes light up red and it looks badass. Honestly, like it's like a cheap, you know, old school effect, but I really like it in the fog right there.
1: Yeah. And you're also getting something super fucking evil in a chapel with the stained glass and everything. Yeah. So yeah. it's yeah. Love yeah. that shot.
0: And we've seen like. Revenant hands breaking through stained glass and whatnot throughout the church. Like the church was getting bashed as they were coming in. I don't know how many people were on the ship because you never see more than... I don't know, eight of them at a time, yeah. but they're attacking multiple places simultaneously. So there's a bunch of them. But Blake starts to come for Malone as Malone says his grandfather's the one that stole the gold and he's now the one that must answer for it. He says that he's the sixth conspirator and he gives himself to Blake as Blake approaches him with a sword drawn. But Blake puts the sword away and he grabs the cross, which starts to glow really, really bright. And he and Malone start to shake as they're both holding on to the cross and it gets brighter and brighter and starts to smoke a lot. Until Nick runs and pulls Malone loose and we can see Blake kind of burn out with this bright light from the cross and then the fog rolls away and all of the other ghosts are gone with it. We cut back to Stevie and we can see that her ghosts are gone now too and the fog is rolling away from the station and all seems clear for now. The church crew heads out to watch the fog leave as Nick has a smoke and we can see the fog slowly rolling through the town until it's gone. And then we cut to Stevie and we see her go in air and say, I don't know what happened to Antonio Bay tonight. Something came out of the fog and tried to destroy us. And in one moment, it vanished. But if this has been anything but a nightmare, and if we don't wake up to find ourselves safe in our beds, it could come again. To the ships at the sea who can hear my voice, look across the water into the darkness, look for the fog. Awesome speech. If it wasn't so long, I almost put her in here saying it because she does it so much better than me, but I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. I love that whole thing because it's very creepy and ominous and sounds like an old legend fairy tale thing, right? About, you know, be wary at sea kind of thing. Yeah. But we cut to the church and we can see that Malone's in the chapel alone wanting to know why not six, why not come for him? And as he walks away, we can see that there's light under the church door and a bit of fog rolls in and Blake and crew have returned. And Blake then immediately decapitates father Malone credits the end. No joke.
1: (laughs) Yep. Straight up the supposedly dead killer. Fucking trope. (laughs)
0: Really, it was, wasn't it? Which John Carpenter invented. So I guess it's allowed. (laughs) But here's my problems with the story. One, John Carpenter has gone on record several times saying that the six people killed were descendants of the six conspirators, right? But he never actually said it in the movie, but that was the plan. Okay. And I could see that. I actually guessed and assumed that right? Up until a point, you would think that, okay, it's going after Andy and it's because Andy and Stevie are the sixth, descendant, right? But it's also going after Father Malone, which we know he's one of the descendants of the six conspirators, right? Yeah, for sure. Right, right, So like that's the only reason why I could think it would go after Andy, because Andy's related to Stevie, so either one of them would work, right? But then Andy gets away with Nick and all them. We have the encounter at the church with Father Malone, but Stevie's also being attacked, which I could write off the Stevie thing as she's the one warning everybody where to go to get away. So they're trying to stop her so they can get to Father Malone. Yeah. But it doesn't explain why they kept going for Andy. Right. So that's kind of like a, a plot hole to me right there. A little bit. And it's, it's partially due to the fact that I'm going off of behind the scenes knowledge that they were supposed to be descendants. But when you find out that the entire Adrian Barbeau fight at the lighthouse scene was added in, in one of the reshoots.
1: Yeah. It kind of throws all that right out to the realize window. realize
0: why it's out of place. Yep. Right. And I can't remember Blake going for Andy after killing the sitter was probably added as well.
1: It may have been. So if you
0: cut out the Andy scene and you cut out the the scene with Barbeau at the lighthouse, then it would be completely cohesive. I mean, that doesn't fix the movie. Like, it still has its holes there. That's how <laughs> it was released. But I don't know. I didn't like this movie at first. But after watching it with my undivided attention, there's a lot of really cool backstory and legends here. And... I know I was saying things he was inspired by. I think I forgot to mention like the old horror comics, like tales from the crypt era and stuff. Like there's a bunch of tales in there and it really kind of felt like one of those stories. This would have been a cool anthology. And this was interesting to see, because I think this was his first movie after Halloween or his first horror movie after Halloween. Cause he made Halloween and then he made two made for TV movies, including Elvis. Right. Yeah. And then he went back. So this was like his first low budget indie horror movie after Halloween. So this is what we, we, got to see before he started doing big studio jobs because the big studio jobs came after this one. And I had a bad memory of it, but like I said, every time I watched the movie and I remember not liking it that much, I was watching it while doing something else. And I kind of think that ruined it because there's a lot of story.
1: Yeah, the extra shit, the, the reshoots and getting everything put together, being smart enough to see that and do it, it definitely saved the movie. Because like I joked earlier, God, my God, how bad was it before he decided to do all that? Because I think I, right. I either watched or read a thing that the, the principal photography took a month and then the reshoots took a month. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. And like you said, it ends up being a third of the film. Yeah. I think it
0: would be interesting to see the 80-minute cut of the movie that would have been PG-13 rated had it came out. Yeah. like I don't think it would have been that bad of a movie because you, you're missing some of the plot holes and okay. So you, you see people getting killed from afar and no blood. I mean, that's how Halloween was. Right. So
1: yeah. Now there's some of it that comes off a little clunky. Like the, there are scenes that just, they don't feel like they move anything along. It's just like, this happens just to get us somewhere else without feeling like we're progressing. Yeah. But the action beats the creepiness. I like all that. Um, it's too atmospheric to be like full on terror
0: I think the atmosphere is part of what saves this movie, honestly, because the fog it's creepy. It's a character in itself. It's the shape.
1: Yeah. 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 But that's, but that's the thing. Like, and then for, for me, like intercut with the, you know, extra tight shots of, of it's not really gore, but like of the kill scenes and stuff makes it feel like, Oh, okay. Like I, like there was a payoff from, from dealing with all the tension. You know what I mean? Instead of it just being, being there the whole time. So that works. Being stuck in that fucking pothole feels like it's eight minutes long. And I don't like that part. (laughs) That's, that's too much
0: yeah one of my favorite things about the direction of this film was i really liked the two stories happening at the same time as it cut back and forth yeah i thought that was really well done both times that they did it because you get the tension build up really big and then it cuts to the other story and you're like fuck but i want to know what happened and then the tension builds up in this one and they just take turns and i don't know it's really well done in this movie so i thought that was a neat thing john did
1: yeah, that works. I wish I could remember more of seeing this as a kid because even when the wife and I rewatched it, I don't know, like months ago, a year ago, I didn't really remember the movie. And even coming back to it <laughs> now to watch it for the podcast. I didn't really remember the movie. It's not bad, <laughs> but it's not great. You know what I mean? That's, that's gotta say something yeah. that I can't, that I can't remember stuff from it, but I can remember that shot in the fucking church. Didn't remember the big ass cross, <laughs> but that one shot, it's just, it's so good. The, the writing and the idea for the movie. Love it. Love the idea. Yeah. Love the plot devices. The the whole setup at the beginning, like you said, with the, the ghost story and everything. And like, Oh yeah. And like telling the kids, like it was a fire, much like this one. All of that Mm -hmm. is so good. It's, it's, it's one of those things that I know it's been remade. I know I've seen the remake. Don't really remember the remake, but it's one of those that (laughs) even if you took like, Oh, we should have done this, this, and this, and did that in a remake. It's not going to fucking work. It's just not that kind of movie.
0: I I would love to see the movie with just the scary story at the campfire scene and the like phones ringing and the cars going crazy. Like all of that, like, and just, leave the other stuff out because like i said i feel like that's what makes it clunky but i don't know this was definitely an important one to cover because it was in a weird time if you think like i said it's right after halloween this is the first time he really got experimental with doing something like really different and this was still full indie with him having full control yep and probably the last time i think before he started doing studio films which i saw him in an interview and he said you know i know people say Dude, a studio film and an indie film is completely different. He's like, it's the same fucking thing. I just have more money is what he said. So I'm assuming John <laughs> Carpenter was probably always given freedom to do stuff. And like I said, this movie made 20 more million dollars than it cost to make it. And this is what gave John Carpenter and Deborah Hill the money to make Escape from New York next, yep. right? Which we'll cover on the next episode. But for now, we're going to cover Josh's film, which was 1988's They Live.
1: So this one, of course, written and directed by John Carpenter. No shit. Yeah, we'll get into something that confuses some people uh, after we get through our, our people here. So <laughs> we've got Rowdy Roddy Piper as Nada, who passed away in 2015. Of course, more notably as a wrestler, not as an actor. And uh, how he got into this, we'll we'll get into that. But I'm really glad he did. Um, This is one of those movies that there's lists like 20 names long of who they supposedly looked at for the role. And I don't care about that list. I I, people shit on him so much for his acting in this movie. And I don't. Yes. I like I kept running across it and I I wouldn't have it any other way. I fucking I I buy I buy the Joe Everyman. We've got Keith David as Frank. (laughs) And we just went over a lot of the shit he's been in because of being in the thing.
0: That's why I was laughing. I was like, we just did this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We've got Meg Foster as Holly, who did a lot of TV. More importantly, she was in Masters of the Universe. (laughs)
0: I know you're joking, but that's what I recognize her from. I think I was like, it's her eyes; they stand out so much. Oh yeah, I couldn't figure out on her list. I must have missed that one. That's what she stands out to me from.
1: Yeah. Speaking of eyes, she was also in Blind Fury, <laughs> and then more recently hooked up with Rob Zombie, and was in uh, not physically um, <laughs> that Jeez. I kn- that I know of, and uh, was in Lords of Salem in Thirty One. Okay. We've got George Buck Flower as the drifter, which I think he's one of the guys in the boat in the fog. I got to look this shit up.
0: He is. Yeah. He's the one, his character's name was Tommy Wallace. And I think that was Nick Castle's friend that Nick was looking for. Okay. Like he was specifically looking for that character, which is funny because Nick Castle and Tommy Wallace are two real people <laughs> that are friends and friends of John Carpenter. So that was kind of the running joke there.
1: He's been in a crap ton of TV and movies, usually in small parts. And he was also in Starman and Village of the Damned.
0: I think he's in like a little bit part in all the John Carpenter movies.
1: (laughs) We've got Peter Jason as Gilbert. Again, lots of TV and he's not meatloaf. No matter how much I want him to be. (laughs) I thought he was Meatloaf, too. He was in Bad Out of Hell 2 with Meatloaf. He played Meatloaf's father. Yes.
0: (laughs) I guess because he looked enough like Meatloaf. Oh. Now I'm hungry all of a sudden. Yeah,
1: He was also in Prince of Darkness and uh, Mortal Kombat. (laughs) Which one? The OG, 95. Oh, okay, okay. Special effects, we've got Roy Arbogast, which has been brought up before because of (laughs) (laughs) Christine and worked with Carpenter a lot.
0: There's a lot of crossover in John Carpenter flicks, movies, right?
1: Exactly. So it goes without saying that this movie, Carpenter's part of it, (laughs) is definitely partially a response to Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics, Mm -hmm. trickle-down economics, economics. The division of classes and this whole theory of like, don't worry, as long as the people at the top eat, you'll eventually get some scraps. I mean, that really was the premise behind this. Of course, the push by media to get people to go along with this and being distracted by consumerism. Yeah. And uh, it's only gotten worse. So I don't (laughs) care what side of the aisle you're on. It's only gotten fucking worse. Sad, but true. We'll get back into more of where the, the where else the story originated from here in just a second. Um, I do think it was interesting in researching and uh, listening to the commentary that uh, Roddy Piper actually spent a good deal of time being homeless. And uh, there was a good bit of this stuff that really hit home uh, for him on the movie and okay. possibly doing some shady shit in his youth during those times. <laughs> Every interview I found where it started going in that direction, he would change the subject. So I don't know. I didn't go digging directly into him. his his past, but it, it, it piqued my interest a bit. Um, now to get to the source material on this. So it all started with a Ray Nelson book. Well, it wasn't even a book. It's a short story. It's six pages. I even fucking read it. All right. Six pages, guys, you can read it (laughs) called eight o'clock in the morning. And it was later expanded on a little bit in a short comic simply titled Nada because the story follows John Nada, whose name is never even actually mentioned in the movie. Yeah. But eight o'clock in the morning, the character Nada, nothing, nobody, Uh, wakes up from a hypnotist. And instead of just coming out from hypnosis, he's like fully fucking awake and sees the world for what it really is. And he's also told that his heart is going to stop at eight o'clock in the morning. And then the ensuing thing with the aliens and everything unfolds. This is one of the first movies that I actually paid attention to that said it was written by Frank Armitage, which is fucking John Carpenter under a pseudonym. So for anybody who's like, who's this Frank guy that wrote the movie is like, it's fucking John Carpenter.
0: (laughs) Nice, I didn't even catch that.
1: <laughs> no, getting a uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper into the film. John Carpenter was into wrestling. He's talking about like going to wrestling shit at Nashville, mm-hmm. and he he wrote a, a column in in some like wrestling paper or some shit. And I didn't know any of that shit. And <laughs> he goes to WrestleMania three, and uh, <laughs> ends up inviting Roddy Piper to dinner afterwards. Asked him to be in the movie and and watch interviews with with a uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. It's funny as shit because he's just like pass the bread. Do you want to be in a movie? Okay, cool. Like was oblivious to who john carpenter was and then once he found out he's like you want me to be in one of your movies now vince mcmahon made it a whole lot easier for him because first he said fuck no you're not going to do a fucking movie i own you if you want to do a movie you're going to do it with my backing and i'll pay you whatever they are paying you and he took that as a sign of well i don't want to work for you and this was the first time (laughs) he was fired from the fucking wwf
0: well the interview i saw with him and john carpenter from the 80s he said the Vince McMahon told him he couldn't do it. Basically what you said. So then Roddy fucking quit.
1: Well, that's the thing. I've heard it said both ways that either he walked away or walking away was why he was fired.
0: Because I already quit. And then because he made a huge comeback after this movie. Oh, yeah. Like he came back to wrestling after the movie, which makes me think he quit more than he got fired. If they let him come back that easy,
1: possibly, or after he may have gotten a lot more notoriety after the movie. And then it's like, oh, fuck, we need we need that star shine back. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know, it's just really interesting that Roddy quit or was fired or whatever just to do this movie, and then he, he came back. But if you think about it, he was really like the first, or at least one of the first wrestlers to make that bridge to acting Yeah, and make it.
1: Yeah. And he was a big anti-hero in the wrestling scene. I mean, he goes back to like our generation yeah. of when I paid attention to wrestling.
0: Did you see anything about the press tour for the movie when he was on tour with John Carpenter? Uh, uh-uh. John Carpenter really wanted to go into like the problems with Reaganism and like down with Reaganism and, and how we need to change things. And that's the social commentary of this movie. And he wanted Roddy to do it with him. And he's like, well, I'm not a U.S. citizen and I'm here on a green card. Oh, yeah. so I don't think I should talk <laughs> shit about the government. Plus, I kind of like Reagan.
1: <laughs> that's right. Cause he's Canadian.
0: Yeah. So basically it was like, John, I disagree with you entirely. I'm in this movie to be in a movie is what
2: I got. out of
1: it." will see. And that goes back to the fucking Kurt Russell thing with an interview. I was watching of John Carpenter, where he's talking about Kurt Russell being very right leaning and you know, John Carpenter is very left leaning and they're both smart enough to know that when they're working on a project, they're just working on a project. Don't let your fucking ideologies, you know, steer you away from progress. Yeah. A lot of people should fucking come to grips with that, but don't worry. I'm going to get to expound on that like crazy during this review. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, Piper credits John Carpenter and Keith David for making him look as good as he did in the role because he said, I really didn't know what I was doing. And these guys really steered me and took care of me. Now, the Brunswick TV conspiracy has been cited <laughs> even on the fucking commentary piper says this shit and it's not true guys it was a mockumentary and if anybody's ever seen this it was this conspiracy theory that there was these brunswick tvs that had these transmission devices in it that would give you subliminal messaging and make you buy shit Hmm. and and they show this lady who's like i bought 100 pounds of dog food whatever it is she's like i I don't even have a dog But it, it was not a real documentary. It was a mockumentary, but it speaks volumes to the way people are fucking steered then and now and don't even realize that it's happening. <laughs> so I'll try to rein it in on on, on some of the, the conspiracy shit and stick to the source material here. So let's go. So we open with John, Nina, <laughs> who, like I said, his name's never actually mentioned. He's walking through L.A. First thing he does, he has this unemployment office and they tell him they've got nothing available for him. I don't know if it's the mullet or what, but. Got nothing. <laughs>
0: they should have saw him in his kilt in his prime, and they probably would have took him.
1: I know, right? He he should have played him a fucking song. Like you, you ain't got no place that he's a bagpipe player. I got this shit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do like the way he's dressed and the way he has his like whole backpack and sleep sack and all that on his back walking. It really does make me think of old westerns that i would watch with my dad when you have the outsider coming into town that's going to be the hero
1: yep with everything he owns on his back carpenter always says he didn't get to make a western, but he definitely stuck a lot of western shit in his movies <laughs> yep so as he leaves he walks by this blind preacher going on about how they control us and they are our masters and they are mm-hmm. all around us and uh we end up seeing nada spend that night on the street The next day, he goes to a construction site, and uh, he gets rejected when he tries to ask for a job (laughs) due to it being a union job. And uh, he does end up getting hired after he looks over at some day laborers, and he asks the foreman, he's like, hey, can I speak to the shop steward? Because if it's a union job, you ain't going to have, sorry, he saw some Mexicans speaking Spanish. Given the time, he knew those (laughs) motherfuckers weren't union, okay? And uh, (laughs) so the foreman gives him a job, but tells him he can't sleep on the fucking job site.
0: Because that is where he was actually sleeping, right? Like he woke up there and applied for the job, I think.
1: Pretty much. And he had his whole fucking, his whole kit on his back. Because he's like, I got my tools, but he's got that sleeping bag too, like you mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) So he's working with who we'll end up finding out is Frank. And uh, Frank says he'll take him someplace that he can stay. And they go to this homeless camp. And the cool thing about the homeless camp is John Carpenter actually paid real homeless people as extras. And Mm -hmm. uh, even had to pay off some gangs to be able to use the spot that they (laughs) wanted to use. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that shit was crazy when i heard that he's like yes yeah, the only movie I ever made where i had to pay off gangs to shoot the scenes <laughs>
1: welcome to la <laughs> <laughs> so at the camp Nada meets gilbert and gilbert gives him the task of fixing the showers so we, you know, you get what you give. We quickly learned that it, it's a commune system where everybody's you yeah. know, working together for the greater good and the greater good being survival, not someone else's fucking bottom line. They're sitting there eating and Frank tells Nana that he left his family in Detroit to find work. And he goes on a bit of a rant about the system.
2: The golden rule. He who has the goal makes the rule. They close one more factory. We should take a sledge to one of their fancy fucking foreign cars.
1: You know, you got to have a little more patience
2: with life. Yeah, well, I'm all out.
1: So we're quickly learning that Frank is pissed off at the system, and Nada believes in the system, and that people eventually get their chance. Because he even says, you know, you got, you know, you got to have some patience. I think everybody gets theirs. It looks like a throwaway line, but it's a very, very important line in the movie because it's yeah. a, it's a very good example of the divisions in society, not just how were treated by the elite but even how people stick to their ideology and their tribalism of i've been fucked over and i'm really pissed and i'm going to eventually hit my breaking point and do something about it And the other thought being, I agree with everything that you're seeing, but I'm a good person and everybody has good in them. And I'm just going to wait until I get my turn, too, because life's fair. Like they're both very firm in their beliefs and they're both very wrong. And then that in society makes people turn against each other. And that's the biggest problem. And I have a spot in here for my rant and I'll save the rest of it for that. So later that night. We see a pirate TV signal break into a show that some of the guys at the camp are watching and this Alex Jones type guy delivers the message.
2: (laughs) Our impulses
0: are being redirected. We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. Oh, goddamn hacker. That second
2: time night, that assholes cut in.
1: So while this is going on, Nada notices the blind preacher like across the lot reciting the broadcast word for word. Now I think, With what we're going to find out later, he may have even written this, or at least he was with Ah. him enough to rehearse it. But he's used to being out there preaching prophecy. So maybe he wrote it because he really is, man. He's just lip syncing perfectly with it. So as he's looking this way, he notices Gilbert going off into this church across the street, and the preacher goes in with him. And the next day, Nada confronts Gilbert about his uh, (laughs) late night in the church. He's like, choir practice ran a little late, huh? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he's told the, oh no no we're over there all the time they let us use the kitchen we then see gilbert and some other people watching another rant on the tv right after this because <laughs> they got a tv in their camp they got soup and they got a tv and they got a little bit of shelter and they've got showers uh, assuming not to actually fixed them so they're getting by they're doing all right now this rant talks about how uh they can't overtake the signal and it must be destroyed at the source now i gotta present this from a point of view of not knowing what's going on in the movie and right now it's like, <laughs> what? Because <laughs> you have no idea. It's like, okay, I'm hearing some shit I've heard before, but what's this signal shit? And why is this guy just breaking right. in on broadcast? After this, Gilbert goes back over to the church, but this time Nada fucking tails him. As he's going in, we can hear a choir singing. And once he gets inside, Nada sees that it's just a fucking tape recorder set up on some loudspeakers. Mm-hmm. He also sees like this lab equipment and these boxes everywhere, along with hugely spray painted on a wall. They live. We sleep, which Mm -hmm. kind of sums up the whole fucking point of the movie. But we'll we'll keep going.
0: Maybe they should have used that for the title of the film in its entirety. Yeah, maybe. I bet they tried and the studios like, no, it's they live.
1: It's still better than eight o'clock in the morning. Like, I buy eight o'clock in the morning as a book or a story, but not as a movie. So, the next room over, we see, but John doesn't see. And I'm probably going to bounce back and forth between saying John and Nada. We see Gilbert and the broadcaster dude arguing about the signal not being strong enough. And the broadcaster dude says they need to get, maybe it's time to get the shipment out on the streets. What the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Nada trips and like knocks open this hidden compartment in a wall. And there's even more boxes in there. Then we actually get a jump scare here of preacher dude popping up and like grabs fucking Roddy Piper by the throat. (laughs) And he said that when they were filming it, it literally scared him because he didn't know how it was going to go down. He knew he was going to touch his (laughs) face, but he didn't know he was going to start off by grabbing his neck. And he's a blind guy. He's feeling his face like you're new to the community. Who the hell are you? He ends up saying something about how uh, he wants to show him the revolution, but not as a little freaked out. And he bails. Later, he notices the boxes being loaded up, like into cars and shit, and he tells Frank what he's just seen on the inside and how it's fucked up that they're broadcasting this shit and there's all these boxes. And by broadcast, I mean the choir singing coming out of the speakers. Frank's not really down with getting into it. He doesn't want to stir up any shit. He's just there and getting fucking money to send back home. So later that night, the cops show up in full force, demolish the shit out of the camp and raid the church. A real police state scenario. Yes. Now, Piper said that this scene was actually very hard for him because this reminded him of being homeless and literally watching this happen. And this is like going back to the old thing of, you know, illegalizing homelessness. And there's a whole argument that could be made about squatters rights. I think squatting is terrible no matter what i think as a society we should be doing more better in constructive ways instead of just setting up programs that allow people to siphon off money and go on tv and talk about how they're they're making change in the world it's fucking bullshit anyways we're not to josh's rant yet are you sure because i've
0: gotten a a little (laughs) bit of a taste of a rant a couple of times
1: i'm just priming the audience man so uh (laughs) i knew i shouldn't let you do they live
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just fucking with you.
1: <laughs> no, man. So not escapes, but he does run into the cops going full on police truck on the broadcaster dude and the preacher.
0: You mean like dead Kennedy? Style? I mean like
1: dead Kennedy style. <laughs> okay. Okay. Couldn't resist it. So he does end up going into a house that a few people have collected in, you know, kind of seeing this shit go down and he heads back to the now empty church the next day. And of course the camp's fucking decimated and the church has been burned out. Mm-hmm. All the shit's gone, but in the compartment there's still boxes and he snags one of the boxes and he gets the hell away from there. Smart guy. You don't stand there and go through the shit when all the shit just right. went down. Take the shit elsewhere. Good writing. Uh, anyways, <laughs> way to go. Frank Armitage. <laughs> So once he gets to this alley, opens it up and he goes digging through it. Cause it's, so there's all these sunglasses in it and he's trying to dig to the prize. There is no prize. It's yeah, just like, where's the
0: cocaine? It's <laughs> surrounded by Ray-Bans.
1: <laughs> so he takes one of the pairs of glasses <laughs> and he stashes the rest in a trash can and he puts the glasses on and he walks down the street and the world revealed through them shows the truth, a truth true today and beyond all advertisements are stripped down to their core meanings. I will give you some examples. Obey, marry and reproduce, consume, work eight hours, sleep eight hours, play eight hours, buy, submit, no independent thought, stay asleep. Number one, when you're seeing all these advertisements, that's all matte paintings, really good work. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of these are directly lifted. The phrases are lifted from the original story. Okay. This is the problem, everybody. I'm really going on a rant now. Get out of the tribalism. Oh. It's not left. It's not right. It's not white. It's not black. It's not gay. It's not straight. It's not purple, pink polka dot. These are all used by the ruling class to make us mad at or jealous of one another. And as long as we're button heads, they just sit back, make the rules and count the fucking dollars. And that's what this movie's about. It's about the infighting and what's going on at the top that we're too busy fucking squabbling to figure out what's going on. The thing they fear the most is the black man, the white man, you know, girl boy, whatever. All these things they've told us to fear and and be mad about. All putting that shit aside and realizing that we outnumber them, okay? Yep. Moving on. <laughs> I'm
0: going to say that was uh pretty contained for a rant from you. I've heard much worse. <laughs> but this one of the things John was saying is like the movie's like known for being like so far left now, but like when he made it it was basically like up against it all, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and there's even the case of friggin' white nationalists trying to say that Carpenter was trying to say, oh, it's the Jews, like the yeah. Jew- the Jews are the yeah, aliens about that. Like, and that's another thing, like, stop, stop putting it in <laughs> a fucking bubble. It's they're bad. We're whatever, but they're bad. <laughs> there's a meme of all these people bowed down with somebody cracking a whip. And then like in the next frame, one of them stands up. And in the next frame, like five of them stand up. And in the last frame, yeah. all of them have stood up. That's what we got to be, people. We, don't have, we can <laughs> work out our differences later. Let's work on the thing that's fucking us all. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> I do want to say
0: before you go on about the, um, the alley scene with Nada and the sunglasses. I don't know if it was Piper's acting or John... Or Frank Armitage wrote it this way, or John's directing, but I don't know. Like you don't see stuff like that in the movie. Like you made a point about how you know after he mule kicked the wall open, he he took the box. He didn't go through it there to get caught, right? Yeah, and he he digs through an alley, but he doesn't just throw the box of other glasses in the uh, trash. He actually takes half the trash out and puts the box in yeah, there, yeah. and he stashes the them top of it. And I don't know. He's more realistic than any other. I mean, I guess that's, that's reached to any other, but as far as my memory goes, he's more realistic than most characters you see yes. in a movie.
1: People rag on him for it. I, bullshit. That's what makes it work. He is Joe. Every man.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, I just want to point that out. Cause I, I just think it's really interesting to see those just like quick little shots. That's like, yeah, that's what you would probably really do. Cause he doesn't want to get caught. Right. Yeah. And then he happens to have left a pair of sunglasses on the ground. So he just keeps them. Cause the, you know, He walks and the sun's bright.
1: (laughs) So he then looks up and lays eyes on the first person he's going to look at with the glasses on. And the man is some kind of fucking skeletal ghoul. Now, Mm -hmm. in the original story, they were like reptilian aliens with multiple yellow eyes.
0: Oh, it was the lizard people huh
1: yes so if you want to go down that <laughs> rabbit hole about how the queen is a lizard and all that shit and they're the ones who have invaded like people believe this shit that like the, the elites have been usurped by fucking reptilian aliens just go read and listen to David Icke if that's your thing go for it <laughs> but that's not what was done in this movie now the fight coordinator is who you see most of the time in the makeup and I really should have wrote his fucking name down
0: yep man woman or anything right
1: <laughs> yeah because he fit in the suit and they only had so many suits to go around <laughs> so not a thing goes walking around and he's just he's just looking at all the shit the world beneath the flashy bullshit and uh while he's doing this he starts to hear this fucking voice in his head and we see this transmitter going and it's saying sleep 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 and that's actually john carpenter and they just slowed his voice down okay so he then goes into this shop and I love this. The messages and the ghouls are just everywhere. Every product, and like, <laughs> like a third of the people in there are ghouls. And like, one of them's like, like a regular guy talking to one of them. He's like, man, when am I going to get mine? He's like, you're all right, man. You'll make it. And he's like, that's easier for you to say. You got the promotion. Oh, well, just calm down. Like that, like this whole idea of like, <laughs> oh, you're, you're corrupt. You're what the fuck is this though? Cause we don't know they're aliens yet, man. We don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> and he looks up at this TV and this TV lets out this broadcast and uh, it's so iconic. And this is the most on-the-nose indictment of Reagan in the movie, in my opinion, because Reagan had his 1984 Morning in America campaign ad. And the way the clip starts off immediately makes me think of that.
2: The feeling is definitely there. It's a new morning in America. Fresh, vital. The old cynicism is gone. We have faith in our leaders. We're optimistic as to what becomes of it all. It really boils down to our ability to accept we don't need pessimism.
1: Now you and I also know this as a clip from the fucking good riddance song. <laughs> Weight of the world.
0: <laughs> yep. It's the uh, opening track to a comprehensive guide to modern rebellion. And I don't know. It just, it fits so great going into that song, but it's such a good clip too.
1: It is. And it's a, it's a great example of the brainwashing. Like, and, and I think it, towards the end of it, he even looks at it and he takes the glasses back off and puts them back on again. he's like, I figured it'd be this kind of shit or something like that, which
2: <laughs> is so
1: on the nose. So then this ghoul lady bumps into him. He leans right into the truth that he now sees and rips into the ghoul lady.
0: You know, you look like your head fell in the cheese dip back in 1957. You, you're okay. This one... Real fucking ugly. That's honestly like as far as comedy in the movie. I think that's my favorite part is, and I guess like wrestlers can act in movies and get away saying shit that I wouldn't give other people credit for. But he does it like clean and perfect. Anyways, outside of the realm of being a wrestler, yes, actor. It's so good. I love all of that, man. It's basically Dave Chappelle's inspiration for "fuck you, fuck you, you're cool." Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh. So then fucking ugly speaks into (laughs) her wristwatch and she says, I've got one that can see. And then the other ghouls all start walking towards them, talking into their wristwatches too. And, uh, they're saying, you know, where he's at, what he looks like, not as like, oh, (laughs) he fucking runs out (laughs) and he's quickly jumped by two ghoul cops. Now I want to keep it going for anybody who's never seen this movie for the love of God, see this movie. Um, but it, it's never eh, it's not a lot of us seeing the ghouls. It really is his point of view, seeing the ghouls with the glasses on. It's not one of those that just like flips the switch and we see this world now. Right. And just in case you didn't say it, because I don't think you did, it's black and white when the glasses
0: are on, which is very key. Puts the glasses on. He can see the signs, true meaning. He can see the aliens, but it's also black and white, which is a really cool effect to add with it to let you know that you're seeing it different
1: exactly and it's well and it's taken the the showing you that all the pain on top is just bullshit so I took it <laughs> but Nada quickly ends up shooting both the cops and uh, he's now they're ghoul cops he needs he, not killing regular people and he's now armed with a police issued revolver and shotgun that he got out of the squad car <laughs> so more cops start to close in and <laughs> he just ducks into the first door he comes into and it's this bank half filled with ghouls He then delivers the most well-known line from the flick.
0: I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. You mean that's
1: not a Duke Nukem original? No, it is not.
0: (laughs) Just kidding. I knew that. (laughs) That was awesome to see as a kid.
1: Now, this came from Piper himself. He had a book of quips for shit that he could say in the ring. And this is the one that they landed on for this part. And I didn't know that until researching the movie. And I think it's fucking (laughs) awesome.
0: Yeah. John thumbed the book and he liked that one the most. And I think when he made his comeback to wrestling, he started using this one too.
1: Oh, really? Yeah.
0: That's what I read. Anyways, I don't remember much about him wrestling. I was never really into it, even though I was a kid other than I just remember him with the mullet and elbow dropping people in a kilt.
1: Yeah, he was the guy in the kilt. You had Hulk Hogan, (laughs) the guy with the snake and the guy in the kilt (laughs) and Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, there was there was like a summer that I was into (laughs) wrestling, but that was it. I know. It's like they were all characters and most of them had their own
0: Saturday morning cartoon show.
1: And that's the other thing, man. That's what they felt like. They felt like <laughs> real life cartoons, man.
0: And then most of them became actors and then it just kind of changed into what it is now. Yeah. We still have some of them acting though. We got the rock. I like the rock. I like John Cena and shit. He's usually pretty funny.
1: We've got Dave Bautista. I mean, come on. Yeah. A- I like The Rock. I like Batista. John Cena. I, li- I like him acting. Like I got drugged to see that crappy movie, The Marine. It was a crappy movie, but he was all right in it. I like him in
0: comedy movies. Like he is hilarious in comedy movies and children's films. See that?
1: That's the kind of shit. I need to see him in then. <laughs> so uh, back to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> And the bubble gum, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not as like looking around. He's like, fuck it. And he just starts blasting away at all these fucking goals. And I love it. (laughs) And I really wish it went on like way longer. (laughs) I know they had some money for this movie and most of it went for the shootouts towards the end. But I was like, I want to see him go like across town and like hop on a bus and shoot five of them and get off at the next stop. And a little old lady like nod at him and shit like there they could have went way farther with it without it going out of hand but anyways
0: it's a weird scene to me too because it feels both out of place and fitting at the same time because he goes from like three to eleven yeah well
1: that's what i'm saying he could have out of nowhere they they could have gotten away <laughs> with taking it farther man i really think they could have
0: but their amps only go to eleven man <laughs>
1: So then he's about to blow one of them away here in the bank and it's talking into its wristwatch and giving a description. And then all of a sudden it just blips into nothing like fucking gone. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? So now runs outside and he's spotted by a drone and it like really feels like a 1960s fucking sci-fi <laughs> movie drone. And we get a POV shot from the, from the drone. Of course it shoots it. and I'm cool with that too. <laughs> <laughs> and he ducks into a parking garage and there's this lady who we're going to find out his name, Holly who he kidnaps, hops in her car, and makes a getaway.
0: This is another one of those clever scenes, too, because just the way he's talking to her and the way he's hiding and the way he wants to know if she's single yeah, so they can go to the house. That way he knows there's no
1: aliens involved.
0: (laughs) He knows there's nobody to call the police. I don't know. He really is just, like, hitting every point that they usually skip in a movie.
1: Yeah, he's covering his fucking bases. So once they're at her house, he's trying to tell her what's going on. And it's just so funny (laughs) to think about it. (laughs) Think about somebody popping up on you and saying, I got these glasses, man. When you put them on, you can see the truth. It was like, you've done too and much. They were Crack
0: kills. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's something. Yeah.
1: And uh, what we do find out about her is that she works at cable 54. That's going to be important later. And pretty much right after she says that Nada pops up saying that they're sending out some kind of a signal. Like he's, he's already connecting the dots. Like, oh my God, maybe it's a TV station. <laughs> She hits him over the back of the head with a wine bottle or a champagne bottle and then tosses his ass out the window because she's in this nice house out on the fucking Hollywood Hills. And we're fixing to get a comment of a shot while there's squad cars coming down the road and John Carpenter on the commentary is like, there they are coming down my street. I don't know if he still lives there or not, (laughs) but that's what's on the commentary. Anyways, so the guy that goes out the window and falls down the hill is Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double. Oh, really? So I wonder if it's the same guy from that movie Lovecraft.
0: There's a lot of them reanimator reanimator thank you (laughs)
1: anyways (laughs) so john falls down the hill (laughs) and she she gets on the phone and it sounds like she's calling the cops but maybe she's calling somebody else more on that later (laughs) cops fucking rolling up not a heads off and he goes to retrieve the other glasses out of the trash and trash has already been picked up by a garbage truck. And he climbs up inside of it. And luckily, the garbage truck driver's really bad at his job and just flips the switch and dumps all <laughs> the trash and John back out in the alley. <laughs> <laughs> so he's in this alley surrounded by all this trash. And Frank shows up. <laughs> Frank's like, man, your picture's all over fucking TV. I don't want anything to do with you. Here's one week's pay. Mm-hmm. I'm out. <laughs> and Nada tries to get Frank to put on the glasses. And Frank's like, no, I don't do PCP. <laughs> 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 and a nearly six minute long fight scene ensues. And this is yep. iconic as shit and was inspired by a Western. I forget which fucking one Carpenter said it was inspired by, but back to the Western thing. And this has been spoofed so many times, most notably cripple fight from South park. Cause cripple fight from <laughs> South park is like shot for shot. <laughs>
0: I saw in like an interview that John had written like a really short fight, but Piper and David went back and they had choreographed their own fight and practiced it and practiced it and took it to John. And he's like, well, then we're going to keep it then.
1: Is that what you found? It's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Carpenter on the commentary does say it was inspired by the successively long fight scene. And then I think once they started doing it between Frank being gung ho and Piper being a wrestler, it kind of got out of hand. And it just turned into, what else can we do? I don't know. Let's do this. Move the camera over here. <laughs> like, it's just, like some of that shit really does feel that way. <laughs> it's really weird. I'm going
0: to, I'm just going to explain it like this to anybody who hasn't seen the movie. And once again, please go watch this movie because it's just fucking batshit crazy and fun. But the fight goes and then it goes and you're like, oh, it's going to be too long. And then it is too long. And then they go a step past that and you're like, oh, fuck. Why is this fight so long? This is dumb. And then it goes even longer and that makes it kind of funny. And then it finally ends after a few more minutes. And you're just like, that was great, right? But it's weird because you go to this roller coaster of emotions and it's actually, I think I saw one of them say this in an interview. I don't remember if it was John or Piper. I don't know. I might be imagining this, but I thought I saw one of them say that like the fight is drug out just long enough that it's too long and you're pissed. And then it goes a step past that, which makes it comedy.
1: Yeah. It's just like the pilot joke in hatchet three. <laughs> <laughs> and what's, what's even better is like, it goes back and forth between like, I'm fucking mad at you and I'm going to kill you. And I'm your buddy. I don't want to hurt you or you're my buddy. I don't want to hurt you. <laughs> the nut knee (laughs) insane that just hurts no matter what they just beat the fuck out of it's like just put on the
0: glasses and just act like oh yeah i see shit you know what i mean and get out of there instead of just beating each other senseless (laughs) yeah i think he like pile drives them and suplexes them and all sorts of shit he did just about every wrestling move except for fucking tap the elbow and jump off of something you know
1: (laughs) exactly and you're right though the whole time he's telling he's like just put on the glasses (laughs) and frank's like no On the fucking commentary, it gets to this part. He's like, just put on the glasses. And John Carpenter goes, see, there you go. The white man trying to tell the black man who's oppressing him. And I'm like, holy shit. I did not. Wow. This shit's so much deeper than even I gave it credit for. And I'm like, he's exactly right. That's what's happening right now. Carpenter was really trying to put some deep shit in this movie, man. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. And
0: Rowdy, Rowdy Piper just wanted to be in a movie. <laughs>
1: so that's about how long the fight is and uh so eventually frank gives in (laughs) and puts the glasses on (laughs) and he about shits himself (laughs) when he sees what nada has been seeing
0: brother life's a bitch she's back in heat could you imagine what would have happened if the glasses got broke during the fight
1: oh my god that'd be so fucking funny (laughs)
0: Like, that's got to be a spoof in like a scary movie. 97 or something.
1: right? <laughs> oh, shriek. If you know what I did last Halloween, part three, but there's only part one. <laughs> that's a real movie, by the way. Um, I know. Oh, it's so sad. The wife put it in the other night. Anyways, <laughs> I purposely skipped that one. You did good. I did well. No, no. I'm, I'm an American. I speak American. <laughs> This is
0: Americanese, goddammit. I know my rights.
1: What is it? Uh, It's fucking Fifth Element. Look, lady, I speak two languages, English and bad English. <laughs> it's Bruce fucking Willis, I'm sure. I just don't remember which movie. He's in so many, and he needs the shit. Okay. Quick down okay. Dallas, multi <laughs> Big bada boom. Okay, so I got to get back to this movie. <laughs> so they're holding up in this hotel until they're spotted by Gilbert. And Gilbert gives them the location of a meeting that night. And they go to the meeting and they see that it's a small resistance force. They've got weapons and these bitching ass new contact lenses so you don't have to wear the bulky (laughs) Ray-Bans. And uh, it says it makes the headaches better, too, because that's something that's been going on. When the the hack signal comes on, people complain about headaches. And then they're both Frank and Nodder complaining about wearing the glasses for too long. Gives them a headache. It's like Neo being woke the fuck up. Exactly. And
0: I didn't see this in an interview or anything. But it made me kind of think that it was like everybody's so numb to the fakeness and ready to go with it that it's just painful
1: to live in the real world. That is exactly fucking right, man. (laughs) Okay. I didn't read that anywhere either, but that's exactly right. (laughs) Like, I
0: like to watch my movies to just get a movie. Like, I, I don't necessarily ever want any arguments or debates about politics or religion and so in it because i watch movies to turn my mind off and escape the real world but i don't know he he somehow did it in this movie where it's like okay i get what you're doing yeah
1: (laughs) and he he points at reagan but it's subtle it's not like this it doesn't say this is wrong and this other option is right it just says look people something is wrong
2: we
0: were too young to remember reagan being president Yeah, but it doesn't matter who I talk to and what side of the line they're on and poor construction worker like my dad versus friends that we grew up with. Rich dads, you know, if you're any of them talk, the world basically changed when Reagan became president.
1: It did. And and he talked a lot of shit and had a lot of quote unquote good ideas that didn't pan out. And then the whole fucking thing happened with the Berlin Wall. And then that's all Mm -hmm. everybody remembers. Oh, Reagan was president and we defeated communism. That's all anybody ever fucking remembers. They don't remember the failed economic plans. They don't remember the failed dare anti-drug campaign. They don't remember any of that shit. (laughs) So back to the resistance force. (laughs) So they see that they're kitted up and they also discover this is what's really going on. The ghouls are part of an intergalactic enterprise moving from planet to planet, draining the resources and moving on. So this kind of got repackaged in Independence Day. Um, (laughs) They even recruit humans by giving them power and wealth. Uh Aha. So now we see what's going on. So the group is trying to figure out what station is responsible for the broadcasts. And they also explain how the aliens use their communicators, their wristwatches, to vamp out. They're teleporting. Uh Aha. But they don't know how it works yet. But they can at least listen in. They are very lucky that those aliens' watches made them teleport and
0: not turn camouflage like the predator <laughs> They would have been fucked if this was some predator shit
1: yes so one of the the wristwatches is given to frank so he can listen in on their comms then holly pops up all of a sudden but then this place gets raided as well and this is fucking big time like you thought what happened to the camp was bad like they're just coming in full-blown guns blazing no bulldozer time just shooting the shit right. out of
0: everybody kill everybody
1: yep gilbert gets mowed down in the process holly escapes and Nada and frank end up pinned down at the end of this dead end alley Nada's like i don't remember what he says but he's basically pointing out to frank like dude we're fucked he's like start to sweat or something like that and frank's like sitting <laughs> over there behind a trash can messing around with the watch he's like what are you doing he's like like maybe we could listen to him and he gets frustrated and he throws it down on the ground and when he does a fucking portal opens
2: Quit now, and cake will be served immediately.
1: So they end up hopping in the portal because it's sitting here saying it's like this repair portal will close because it's like your wristwatch has malfunctioned, <laughs> <laughs> and it starts counting down when the portal's going to close. So they got nowhere else to go, so they jump through this hole. So the duo's now down in some kind of underground base, and I'm going to say this is the third act for here on out.
2: All right. And there's all these alien
1: signs that are written in. Well, looks like kind of like a QR code if you stretch it out, but. Uh, <laughs> It's something <laughs> fucked up. And we also see these guys walking around with PKE meters. So apparently the Ghostbusters are part of the alien <laughs> faction, those fuckers.
0: <laughs> and Josh doesn't mean they look like PKE meters. They are literally the PKE meter props from Ghostbusters. <laughs>
1: yes. Just straight up. So they hear these voices in the distance and they make their way into some kind of Bilderberg type meeting. I'm not going to go on a rant about the Bilderberg group. You can look it up if you're curious.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I'll look it up later.
1: <laughs> so this meeting is the aliens congratulating the latest group of humans that have joined them. And they're announcing the destruction of the West Coast Resistance. Holy fuck. That's what, that's what we were just part of. Yeah. And they fucking off this.
0: And I think they say that the, the humans are joining the elite. Oh, yeah. I think the aliens specifically say it that way, don't they?
1: Uh, yeah, because they're talking about their bank accounts growing and how they're rewarded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fucked up, man. And all of a sudden they bump into a drifter dude from the camp. And he's fucking in a nice suit and shit. He's full blown fucking <laughs> turncoat. And his dumbass thinks they joined as well and they're just underdressed. <laughs> so he immediately takes him behind the curtain. And this is the end of this movie, the writing's a little janky. But he immediately takes him behind the curtain and he's like, see this? And it's this teleport pad that takes the aliens to any planet they want to go to. And he's like, pretty cool, huh? He's like, come over here. (laughs) This is master control. And they realize they're in fucking cable 54 holy right. shit and i'm surprised
0: they let the new guy walk the two random guys around fucking key to the palace
1: right exactly because the first time they get confronted is like well where's your pass because they want to actually go into the studio on the other side of the glass and uh, it's either not or frank goes right here and they blow away the two guards <laughs> if it was west craven we could have pulled out the screw
0: your pass and then started <laughs> shooting yes
1: So they then ask the drifter where the transmission satellite is, and he says he thinks it's on the roof.
0: He got a hell of a brochure when he joined to know all this.
1: I know, right? It had to have been like a fucking welcome packet. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a Bond villain, man. It's like here, just in case we're ever under attack, here's everything not to tell the invaders. (laughs) Page one, knowing our weaknesses. (laughs) So Nada says that they got to find Holly and destroy the dish. But the Drifter tries to stop them. You still don't get it, do you boys? There ain't no countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything. The whole
0: goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want.
1: Drifter dude then teleports away. And the duo launches an army of two assault on the station. Along the way, they get directions to the roof. They start blasting their way there. And on the way, they run into Holly. And as they go up the stairs, Nada runs ahead and Holly blows Frank's brains out. And yeah, it really just all of a sudden happens. There's no talking, yep. there's no nothing. If you paid attention to when she was on the phone, she wasn't calling the cops, she was calling the Mm-mm. fucking elite aliens whatever and she's she's
0: fucking bad she's in on it the whole time and she joined the resistance i think to give them the information not just so they could rate it like a speakeasy and take everybody out but i think it was to get the rest of them to go on a death charge and funnel in just like in return of the jedi when they think they're attacking (laughs) the death star that's under construction, but it's a fully operational battle station. It was it was a trap to pull what was left of their resistance into a confined area
1: and mow them down. You're dead nuts on, so she's got to go. But we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so she follows Nada up onto the roof and draws on them Two choppers show up and they got guys with guns on them too. Nada standing by the fucking satellite dish and Nada manages to shoot both Holly. And the dish, but he's taken out by one of the choppers in the process, and he has just Mm -hmm. enough time to flip at the fucking bird as he dies. We then see that with the dish destroyed, and this was what confused me. It wasn't the lie signal. It was a cloaking device hiding the truth. Right, And now the world sees the ghouls for what they really are. We see them on the news. We see them on a TV and in the bar. And we even see Mm -hmm. a quick sex scene of a lady realizing she's fucking one.
0: Hey, what's wrong, baby? Credits. I thought it was really funny. I saw an interview with Roddy Piper or maybe I read it in an article, but he was saying that there's two scenes that regrets in the movie. One of them is when he like breaks down with Holly, like he wishes he would have done it a little different or better, like. He wasn't expecting to have to do a super emotional scene. He thought he was just doing action roles. And the others, he's really pissed about when he flipped the bird at the chopper on the way down. He wishes he would have done a strong, stiff middle finger instead of a limp dying one. And he's yeah. <laughs> like haunted him forever because it wasn't a strong fuck you. And, and that's what he wish he would have done.
1: I saw that and I, I love the weak one because it to me it's like he's dying and that's all he could muster. Yeah.
0: And you don't get the hero to die that often in the movies, right? So it was it was different. See I don't know how they made a comic after the fact if not it didn't make it but
1: i don't know the the comic was just a repackaging of the original story
0: Oh, uh, okay okay that makes yeah, more yeah, sense yeah. the matrix was clearly influenced by
1: this oh yeah had to have been
0: i've never heard the wachowski say that but it, it had to be and and neo's now awakened everyone right yep i hate to put it in modern terms but that's what happened yeah
1: yeah now I know I saw this when I was younger and you know, punk rock kid like, yeah, man, fuck the system. Like that's as deep as I thought about it. Like, yeah. You know, older wiser. It goes through a lot of things, man. It covers race. Yeah. It covers class war. It covers politics. It covers media. It covers consumerism. There's a lot of stuff that it covers and it's still packaged as a fun ass buddy duo alien invasion. Yeah. Comedy action flick. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's just a fun movie, and I I think the first time I saw this movie, if I remember right, my first memory, you were at my house, and we were waiting to see a band play live, and we watched them play live on a station, flick channels, and saw it, and I love this movie, and I watched it a good bit when I was younger, and that's because I really got into kind of like the goofy John Carpenter Action flick movies because he's really good at doing that. Like, yes, he made Halloween, he invented the slasher, he changed the horror genre so much to the point that he made a horror movie after Halloween and it didn't hit the mark because of his past movie changing the genre. And those are great, like, he's got some great horror movies. I love John Carpenter's Vampires, it's one of my favorite vampire movies. But when he does like weird action movies, too, I I think he fucking knocks it out of the park even more than he does with horror, with the exception of Halloween. Halloween was like his fucking pinnacle, right, for (laughs) horror. But I feel like he was stronger in the the crazy action scenes and and those kind of plots
1: going forward. I don't know. We got to finish going through this series, but right now, this Uh may be my favorite John Carpenter
0: movie. Oh, Halloween's going to stay mine, but this is definitely... Definitely a fun one.
1: Yeah. And it and it's like it's like Kevin Smith said in a I think it was in an interview where, you know, I make movies about shit that I know and Dick and Fart jokes. And if I can slip a little bit of message in there, then cool. And yeah, and I think out of out of the body of work from what I can think of right now, I think this is the only one I've seen Carpenter get preachy. And it was done with the light hand, you know, the way it should yeah. be done. And it's still such a fun movie and right. it sparks conversation. And I hope y'all, you know, that have seen this, you're, you're thinking deeper about it or even better. You haven't seen it and it gives you something to go, you know, find, find somebody to watch it with and have a discussion. Yeah. You say it all the time. We're not that kind of a podcast. This is close to this kind of content that, that we get to right. on here. That's probably a big reason why I like this movie so much because I agree with it, but it's right. still well, just well, what's a fun interesting
0: movie. about the message though, is even though John's obviously more left leaning, the message isn't really meant to apply to the left or the right. I think it's meant to apply to everyone. It's yeah. just like, they're all fucking us. We need to change the system. Everybody needs to stop, you know? Living with wool over their eyes, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. And, and if, if you see it for that, I think you'll have fun. If you go with the, well, I'm right wing and this is super fucking liberal i don't want to have anything to do with it i think you're reading too much into it i think it's supposed to just be more like we need to band together as a people and stop the elite from fucking us because the elites on both sides right exactly but i just realized we were getting way too preachy for a podcast with a couple (laughs) cousins drinking beer and talking about horror movies so at that point i'm going to say that's it for our second part of the john carpenter series so you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode where we conclude the series with some of John's more off-the-wall exploitation action flicks. I'm not scared at all. I just feel kind of invincible. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments,
1: questions, and suggestions to our email, sbyspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbyspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys in the next one. Thanks for listening.
0: Horror is the most durable genre in motion pictures in cinema
2: history.